You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 469. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 23rd of April. That's Earth Day plus one. episode, a vintage torpedo bomber ditches in the water near swimmers at a Florida beach. British aerospace ATP becomes challenging to control but lands safely. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, the K2R of aviation. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger in Flight 469. He's ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in... New York City! He's also not only in New York City, but he's off, apparently on a, on a beach somewhere. <laughs> I heard some screaming at the beach. Anyway, uh, you are watching, listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA. And joining me today from our lakeside studio in South Dr. Skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. It helps if I my mouse works too. I was going to give you a hard time for your mouse not working and <laughs> mine didn't work. I ah. pressed the button and it didn't, didn't do anything. It's called karma. Anyway, I'm going to contribute to the copy fund for both of us to get new mouses. Mice. Computer mice. This is a great mouse. I've never had an issue with it. I don't know. Well, doesn't mean that I can't just suddenly decide to. Yeah. I think mine was more operator error than the error of the mouse. No. Can't be. Glad to see you. All right. Good to see you. And continuing on from his studio in. In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. One of those. (laughs) Professional photographer, former. RAF, RAAF, fighter pilot, retired Airbus, the A330, A340, captain for Virgin Atlantic Airlines. That's Captain Nick. <laughs> Hi there, you two. On a very special day, it's St. George's Day, patron saint of England. And he went around killing all the Welsh dragons. Ray! Ooh, well, that's cool. Well, I guess the dragons aren't cool. All right. Well, well, they you wouldn't know they're not there anymore. They're all dead. Uh, I feel but like they're... you're just antagonizing a certain friend of the shows. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, they weren't yeah. necessarily Welsh dragons, oh. but Wales has a few, or had a few, so thank the Lord for uh, St. George. Yes. Thank you, Lord, for St. George. 
stand by for news. Thank you, Paul Harvey. All right, let's start with this first one in the news notebook. It's called Final Report Incident Alitalia A320 at Milan on August 17, 2017. Rejected takeoff after tail strike. Oh, I just remembered I was going to say something really clever. I forget, completely forgot to do that. So I'll have to just move on. Uh, Alitalia Airbus A320 200 registration Echo India Delta. Tango Bravo, performing flight uh, 9041 from Milan, Malpensa to Rome, Fiumicino, Fiumicino? Is that the way you say that? Come on, somebody help me. I think you've got to do a bit more Fiumicino. Fiumicino. Okay. Yeah. Italy. Don't forget to wave your hands around a bit. Fiumicino. Where's Jenny? That's it. Very <laughs> good. Perfect. Yeah. Jenny, I'm Reminds sure, is like very impressed. Luigi yeah. from uh, Mario Bros. <laughs> Mario! <laughs> All right. With one, I'm a Mario. <laughs> 103 passengers and six crew was accelerating for takeoff from Malpensa's runway three, Malpensa, runway 35 right at uh, 1716 local time when the crew rejected takeoff and vacated the runway via high-speed turnoff at about 1,000 meters or 3,300 feet-ish down the runway. A replacement Airbus A320-200 registration, you don't care, uh, reached Rome with a delay of about four hours. Uh, on We care about what happened here. On August 24th, uh, Italy's ANSV reported uh, EIDTB rejected takeoff from rum runway 35 right following a tail strike. The aircraft returned to the apron. Following collection of evidence, the... Uh, Aviation Nacionales. I have no idea what ANSV stands for. It just says ANSV. I'm just going to make something up. Investigative. The investigative. Uh, yeah, I know who they are. It just, Organization. I, I was just going to try to do something in Italian, but it didn't work out. Rated the occurrence a serious incident and opened an investigation. The occurrence aircraft remained on the ground in Milan until August 23rd, then positioned to Rome. Okay, I don't care about that either. On April 15th, the ANSV, ANSV released their final report in Italian only. And guess guess what? Simon's not very happy about that. <laughs> um, He's very Simon. happy about the fact that they released it only in Italian? Yes. Yes. He he puts in his normal rant about Six that. Six penny worth. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's, got, he's definitely got a point. But, okay. Uh, the report concludes the probable causes of the serious incident were Human organizational factors and an inappropriate distribution of passengers ooh, caused a serious imbalance of the aircraft at the start of the takeoff run. Uh, here's a fun one. Contributing factors were the sporadicity of the multi-leg flights performed by the operator. In other words, the sporadic nature of the uh, multi-leg flights. Lack of procedures for load control and monitoring of load distribution due to insufficient information exchange between handlers and dispatch office, also due to the inadequacy of the module used to communicate the load for multi-leg flights. Oh, I read between the lines here. It's some kind of a glitch. Uh, the lack of visual mm. checks of the passenger distribution on board prior to takeoff compared to the load sheet, and the lack of perception. passengers? Yes. Yeah. There we yes. go. We're good. All, Let's go. They're all sitting, so they're all, sitting Everyone, all the way in the back, back of the airplane. Yeah. Everyone's, everyone's on everyone's captain. In the back. <laughs> is, that, is that abnormal? I don't know. Let's go. Uh, let's see. Uh, the lack of perception by the cabin crew of the critica critical, criticality. <laughs> is that right? Wow. 
of the so passenger. Yeah, I know. Sporad sporadicity. And, well, I looked up sporadicity. Sporadicity. And that's, that's, that's a word. Criticality. Uh, I think criticality. Yeah, criticality. No, it's a, it's a word. That is, is it's just too. I can't yeah. pronounce it. And it's an English word. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how bad that is. Just go back to Italian. Yeah, maybe I'll do better with the Italian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm already seeing com comments from our live audience. Um, and feel free, uh, moderators, to boot out anybody that disrespects me anymore. Um, just kidding. That means everybody would be gone. Um, <laughs> bye, everybody. Yeah, bye, everybody. Uh, yeah, so um, a lot of you listen, watch this show to hear me just butcher names of international names and in international places and stuff like that. Yeah, well, Glenn, <laughs> I love you too, man. Love you too. All right. The uh, ANSV reported the aircraft did not receive any structural damage. An abraded surface of about 1.8 meters by 30 centimeters was noted at the bottom of the fuselage and a, an abrasion at the drain mast, though. Yeah, there was a picture here in the uh, report that didn't look that bad. Um, but this could have been a lot worse. So they also said that weather did not play a role. Uh, the, the data downloaded from the black boxes did not show any anomaly or mistake by the operating flight crew nor did they provide any evidence of malfunction of the aircraft. Okay, so they're off the hook. The aircraft had operated a multi-leg daily rotation from Rome, Fumicino, to Milan, Malpensa, to Hamburg, Germany, to Milan, to Rome. Okay, lots of, sounds like there's some repeats there. The ANSV analyzed a uh, 171 passengers had departed Hamburg, 68 of which were destined for Milan, and 103 for Rome. The handler in Hamburg, Hamburg assigned seat rows 1 through 12 to the passengers of Malpensa and seat rows 13 and aft to the passengers to Rome. In addition, three ULDs, or as I like to call them, UDLs, of luggage <laughs> destined for Milan were put into the forward cargo hold. The distribution was intended to facilitate unloading and re refitting at Malpensa. However, the handler in Hamburg was not using the software system used by the operator requiring to send the loading data in email using the A320 LDS, oh, it's a Salt Lake City A320, mm -hmm. a paper form to dispatch load control, a Mormon <laughs> system. No, a paper form. Of course, it wouldn't be a, never mind. Um, <laughs> Sorry, if you're not from Salt Lake City, we apologize for yeah. your lack of understanding of that joke. And if you are, we apologize for offending. <laughs> and if everyone. you're LDS, we do really apologize. Sorry. Yeah. <sighs> wow. We're only on the first news item and we've already offended a lot of people, apparently. Um, well, you two have. Potentially. Sure. Nick yeah. has said nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Wisely. I'm, Wisely. Well, I'm staying stum. <laughs> we all know you, Nick, and we know that you, there's plenty of potential yeah, for you later just, in the show. Just wait only a matter for a few of time. minutes and <laughs> yeah. Nick will. And a few say more beers. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the software module was not designed to accept the seat conditions on multi-leg flights uh, distinct for two or more destinations. The load controller thus did not have the information to finalize the load sheet and assumed a reasonable but unverified seat distribution. Uh, this did not cause any problem on the sector from Hamburg. However, the controller did not anticipate that the Malpensa oh, handler would consider... Huh? No, go ahead, Oh, uh, would consider the seat distribution as valid. The load sheet thus assumed, ooh, you know what happens when you do that. 30, 33 passengers in the forward section of the aircraft, 39 in the middle, and 31 in the aft. That seems like a pretty reasonable, even distribution, right? That's what they assumed. However, the actual distribution was four passengers in the forward, 
47 passengers in the middle and 52 in the aft section of the cabin. In addition, all in the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> the, well, they prob- probably a few of them ended up there uh, on the takeoff <laughs> <Yes>. roll. Um, <laughs> yes. In addition, the forward cargo hold became emptied. So, so we had cargo up there, but in Pal- no Malpensa, they took it all off. So you don't, you get the picture, right? It's a very, very Just tail Just four heavy. people sitting up front. Yeah, four people. Everything else in the back going, of the aircraft. <laughs> That's fun. Uh, in this weight distri- distribution, when the crew applied thrust for takeoff, the aircraft became sufficiently unbalanced so that the tail contacted the runway surface. The crew immediately they did a wheelie. Yeah, they did a wheelie exactly, and they didn't yeah. have those little wheels in the back, you know, to <laughs> to keep it from going too far back. Well, the the training wheels. <laughs> yeah, they, they they took those off when they got their license. Well, I think that they have stuff. You know, those cars that routinely are made to do those wheelies and stuff they put these or maybe they're drag dragsters or something and they put I'm these little bars with down with little wheel. Sure. okay yeah. well yeah yeah i i am particularly okay. uh, the most i don't know what they're called yeah. but yeah anyway training wheels they're no they're not training wheels <sighs> <sighs> i know what you mean called thank casters. you bumper wheels just okay, okay let's just move on <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it would have been helpful in this situation for sure. Yeah. I've just never seen an aircraft there, with that no, installed. No, I, I, see, I was just trying to be funny. Aircraft don't have these. I know. I know. Oh. I was being funny too. Oh. We're just being so funny no. that we're canceling each's humor out. Con- Concord did. <laughs> did it? Concord had a little wheel on the oh. back. Oh, that's right. And um, here's a good comment from John B fifty two. John says, "Don't so don't expect an upgrade on Alitalia." <laughs> Apparently no, not. They didn't no, they everyone's forward. down the back. <laughs> B fifty two. In fact, you're getting have those little keep going to the wheels know, on the wingtips, right? Steerage. Anyway, they do. Yeah. Well, we're getting really. Oh, and Illusion sixty twos have that tail oh, wheel get on a, a stick. list of airplanes with wheels at the back. <laughs> Piper Cub has a wheel on the back. It's supposed to though. A Spitfire it's tail wheel. <laughs> I'm just really sorry that I mentioned Her it. Crap. It was a, definitely clearly a mistake by by me Carry to on. mention that. Okay. Yeah. Long way to go for a joke that just fell flat. Um, it crashed and burned. And, that, and I'm used to that, actually. That's the kind of joke teller I am. I usually forget the punchline. Like dad jokes? Like yeah. Except dad jokes I can remember because they're really dumb. Okay. Let's go back to the news, shall we? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the crew applied thrust for takeoff. And then of course the thing did a wheelie and, uh, it said that the ANSV had concluded in a similar way about a similar occurrence in 2009. See accident, uh, air, uh, BH air a three twenty at Verona. I guess this only happens in Italy. Well, um, they don't like people to sit at the front of the aircraft there. I don't know. Apparently some sort of Italian. Oh, wait a minute. Preference. I was wrong. Some one happened in uh, Stuttgart in 2005. There's Richard Miller supporting you there, Jeff. Is he? How? Oh, wheelie bars. Wheelie bars. Thank you, Richard. On a dragster. Wheelie? Yep, on a dragster. Wh- wheelie. Is that wheelie true? Not wheelie. 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 Nick talking oh. about his wheelie again? Yeah. Liz said, please refrain from talking about your wheelie, Nick. <laughs> okay. You know, I don't really know exactly what else to say about this other than they screwed up. Uh, somebody should have noticed, as Nick mentioned at the very beginning of this, that like the cabin crew or somebody didn't say, huh, that's kind of weird. Like most everybody's sitting in the back of the airplane or the mid to the back of the airplane. 
and uh, didn't seem to be concerned about that. They probably should have. Seems like a strange distribution of passengers. I have a question. Yes. What the report doesn't mention is um, whether the COG was outside the flight envelope. Because had they actually managed to get the damn thing airborne, would it have been controllable? Yeah, I'm wondering. Yeah, because that would be a considerably mm-hmm. that would be much uh, worse. more serious exactly, yeah. incident. Well, I'm surprised that they didn't mention it. Yeah, I would like to have known at least how close it was to the RCG liver. Yeah, or maybe well, pretty close. I mean, you apply a little bit of takeoff power and it falls back on the tail. That's <laughs> probably pretty close to the FCG limit. I would say so. Uh-huh. And I'll yeah. bet the actual final report that we don't have. Oh, I'm sorry. Mentions it. It's, only it's in, in Italian, Italian only. <laughs> <laughs> so I bet. I can post it. No, no, no. Liz, you don't need to post the Italian only report for us. It's not going to help. <laughs> Except it might be entertaining for me to read it in Italian. <laughs> Steph can read it after a couple of beers. Yeah, Steph will have Steph read it after two or three beers. No, no, no. I was going to let Jeff read it after a few beers. <laughs> okay. Anything else that we should say about this crew? No, no it, basically- it must have been quite alarming, though, because, I mean, they only got in total to about 1,000 meters, uh, 3,000 feet. Uh, so you know, it must have happened quite quickly. They only got to they 43 have, knots or something. Like, yeah, not very fast. I must wonder what the they pushed hell the power is up and going it on. <laughs> <laughs> something is because, not right. Uh, they must have gone from like, I don't know what the height of their cockpit is, 30 feet in the air, 20 feet in the air, to about three times that when they sat it on its backside. They <laughs> must have been bike big on a roller coaster. Bit of a surprise. Bit of a surprise. Yeah. Now, now here's yeah. Eyehall Boxes making an offensive comment. So... Uh, depends on the Italian definition of controllable from eyehole boxes. <laughs> okay. Oh, and then thank you, John. John's helping me out. I do appreciate that, John. Oh, uh, there we go. Uh, the ANSV is the Agenzia Nazionale per la Sicurezza del Volo. Nailed it. Pretty good, I think. <laughs> I'll remember that next time I go to an Italian restaurant. <laughs> They're going to go, why are they talking? I'll have the ANSV, please. Agencia? I don't know. Is it Agencia Nazionale per la Del Volo. Doesn't that mean with chicken? It's the National Agency for Flight Security. I did it so much better than stuff. I just have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to this one. David Lieb says with Linguini. L- with ling- Linguini. God, I can't even say Linguini. <sighs> okay. Um, 01B news incident, Cessna 150L, uh, November 19289, 14 April 2021. What's this all about? Wait, that. That November. This has to do with you, Jeff. I know. Though November one nine two eight nine sounds a little familiar to me. Come on, work with me, mm-hmm. Steph. Work with me. Uh, well, what were you doing on April fourteenth? I, Jeff. Thanks for asking. I was flying my little airplane from Atlanta to Charleston, and on guard because we monitor one twenty one point five VHF guard. And I heard someone say, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. I'm thinking. Between uh, the meowing? Huh? Between the meowing? Between the meowing? Yeah. Don't get me started with the meowing and the guard and all the stupid things you hear on guard. Anyway, um, 
the uh yeah i heard mayday mayday and then that like cleaned up all the stupid stuff going on in guard and uh, people were really keen to help out this person and it was kind of breaking up a little bit it was hard to hear exactly what he was saying but you know i I have to say i don't know if this gentleman is listening to the show i doubt it but if he is uh, i want to say that he sounded very professional on the radio and he was basically saying he was declaring a mayday because he lost power in the only engine that this airplane has and was going to attempt landing in a field to the southwest of monroe executive airport uh, somewhere near Charlotte, because there, I think he yes, was. Yes, sorry, of, I, I, stepped, I had to take a phone call there real oh, yeah. quick. But Monroe Executive is part of the Charlotte metropolitan area. It's one of the local airports here. Um, so, uh, and it was like continue. late morning. You said it was like ten a.m. or so, something I like think. that. Because I, I was actually flying that day as well, and oh. I was like, oh, I didn't hear about that at all because I didn't start flying until later in the afternoon, okay. probably about one o'clock. Because I immediately thought of you, Steph, like, because mm-hmm. I, I wasn't sure exactly when you might be flying that day. And I wasn't sure exactly where Monroe executive was. And honestly, I couldn't remember exactly yeah, where Monroe the drop is, zone is. Monroe is southeast yeah. of Charlotte. Yeah. I looked that up and saw that it was kind of a way. They're on go. the same CTAF frequency is where the drop zone is. So we hear all of their traffic. Ah. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So it's non-towered? Uh, non-towered, yeah. Okay. Anyway. He uh, and then not long and everybody was very concerned about this, trying to help out and relay messages for the Cessna um, force landing, and uh, and then I heard a voice saying that uh, he was he was okay that they landed in the field and there were no there was two of them in the uh, that's pretty much all it holds. That's all that it holds. Is yeah, two people. In and uh, but you know sometimes you're just by yourself there. So there were two. Yeah, true. Two people true. and uh, they. Landed safely, and I'm not sure what kind of damage at all. Let's see, airplane sustained unspecified damage to the aircraft. Okay, Uh, sustained unreported damage. I don't know what that means. Either there was no damage, or it just wasn't reported. I don't know. It's a you know, it's a good time of year to land in fields because a lot of them are being um, a lot of like the fall crops are being uh, cut down right now Mm -hmm. and plowed over. So a lot of the fields in the area are quite flat without a lot of high crops or things to snare tires or that's, get you tangled up that's in. a good thing for them mm-hmm. yeah so i just happened to mention it to the uh, apg crew and and to steph and asked if she had heard anything about that in the news or anything but uh yeah i hadn't even heard about it on the news yeah, so it was I guess probably it was not very much a non-event yeah yeah which so, is a good thing good. we don't want it yeah yeah we don't want it to be making the news because that means that something bad probably right. happened so yeah that's it that's the only thing but I was. Uh, I just wanted to say I was very impressed with the. I don't. I, maybe this was a flight instructor who had a lot of experience. Or, Aerowood Aviation is a flight. It's a flight school. Okay. Um, that's the owner operator of the aircraft. Um, okay. Out of Monroe. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, whatever. They did a great job. I think. Good. So. Very good. All right, moving on to this. Uh, also from the aviation safety, uh, aviationsafety.net, aviation safety network. Uh, this is an accident that occurred in 2020, February of 2020, and it was uh, involved a Swearingen Metro Liner SA227-DC, or a Metro 23, I guess it's called, uh, operated by Perimeter, Perimeter <laughs> wow, there, let me take a little swig of this. Perimeter. Mm. Perimeter. I don't usually have trouble with that word. 
Perimeter Aviation as flight Bearskin Airlines 344 was conducting a VFR flight from Dryden Regional, uh, Charlie Yankee Hotel Delta, Ontario, to Sioux Lookout, Charlie Yankee X-Ray Lima, uh, Ontario, with two crew members and six passengers on board. As the aircraft started the takeoff roll on runway 12, the aircraft directional control was lost and the aircraft exited the right side of the runway. The propellers subsequently contacted a snow bank and broke apart. Parts of the broken propellers penetrated the fuselage, injuring one passenger. The aircraft was substantially damaged. Uh, let's see. A similar accident occurred to a Skylink Charter Metro 3 on 29 September 2002. The aircraft, November 343 Alpha Echo, veered off the runway on takeoff from Hawthorne Airport, California, which is really close to LAX, because one of the propellers was not out of the start lock. Okay, immediately after I was reading that, I'm thinking, I have no idea. I've never flown a turboprop airplane. Mm -hmm. I don't know what a start lock is. I figured that Steph probably would know. And I looked it up, so I kind of know too. But go ahead, tell us about that start lock. No, no, carry on. No. Yeah, so the start lock, so certain, uh, it depends on the engine type, but um, if if you need to, if it's the type of engine where you need to start the propellers in a specific configuration, usually unfeathered. Um, So a lot of single, um, single drive turboprops are, are like that because you don't want to um, spin everything up all together um, and create uh, forward propulsion with um, uh, propellers that are um, that are not flat basically so uh, the way they do that is there's something called a start lock so you get it into the start lock on shutdown by bringing the um, the power all the way into reverse and then you bring it um, you bring the the power lever back to the there's a gate for ground idle basically you start it there and then once the gate once it's running then you're going to bring it all the way into reverse again for just a moment and that releases the start locks and then you bring it back to the ground idle gate would you say then that the propeller start locks consist of two spring-loaded pins that engage the propeller piston and would consequently lock the blades in a flat pitch position Correct. Yep. Okay. So you want it in the flat pitch so that you're not going to be it just, it's moving like, forward as the aircraft starts. And it's also yeah. probably easier on the propeller assembly yeah, too. Yeah, right? and everything that's on spinning. the engine. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hall boxes has another definition of start. The start lock is the thing. Start lock is the thing that delays the show every week. <laughs> yes, he's correct on that. Yeah. Well, in in this context, it has something to do with propellers. Um. So interesting though is flow. So levers not being pulled over the flight idle gate to release the. Mm -hmm. Okay, continue reading. I hadn't read through this yet. Yeah, so while the crew was carrying out the before taxi checklist, the start locks task was initiated. However, it was interrupted and not completed. After the captain told the first officer to stand by, the crew's, he sounded just like that, I think, the crew's focus shifted to other tasks. It's likely that this slip of attention resulted in the power levers or levers, if you prefer, not being pulled over the flight idle gate to release the start locks. The before taxi checklist did not contain a task to ensure that the start locks were removed. And as a result, the crew began taxiing unaware that the propellers were still on the locks. Mm. Interesting. So in a single, so the single engine aircraft that I fly that has start locks, um, you wouldn't go anywhere if you didn't <laughs> take it because off the start locks. you only have one engine. <laughs> you only have one engine. <laughs> You would notice right away. Yeah, it would be obvious. Um, and yeah, it's very obvious if you don't take it off the start locks. Okay. Um, uh, I'm just curious at this point. Is it uh, an unusual thing to do in the middle of a checklist? 
No, usually, I mean, usually we do it as soon as the aircraft is started. You can take it off the start locks and still not go anywhere as long as you're holding brakes. Just bring it back to ground idle. I don't think they were doing yeah. it in the midst of a checklist. I think that they're just saying that the before taxi checklist doesn't contain an item to ensure that the to start locks sure are still was... just kind of as a follow up. Uh-huh. Kind of it's safety. on. It's it's on the checklist. You know, on the start checklist to, probably. It's on the it's on the after start checklist. Okay. Yeah. Before taxi checklist. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. it just says that while the crew were carrying out the before taxi checklist, the start mm-hmm. lock task yeah. was. It should be in the. It should be in the before oh, taxi checklist. You're right. It does say that. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, uh, and they obviously got one out, uh, mm-hmm. but the other one got forgotten. Yeah, something distracted them and interrupted well, the flow. Doing the bloody checklist, I suspect. What a stupid time to do an action like that. Huh? Or forgive me for being critical. What I'm I'm confused is why that would be a silly time to yeah. do the start line because test. you're doing a checklist. You, why would you do an you know a, a, what appears to be a fairly critical task like making sure the repellers are in the right? But mode it has to be on the checklist to to somewhere. Flying. Was it's carrying out items. the before taxi checklist. Yeah. Are we talking about a challenge response checklist here, or are we talking about after start actions? Is there a terminology problem? Because if you say, uh, let's have the before taxi checklist, that for me is a challenge and response checklist. Am I missing something? Depends on the SOPs I propose, I suppose. So if they're, you know, if this is a, um, this is an airline. So I suppose it would be challenge and response in that case. Not necessarily. We have both challenge and response type checklist items uh, for various parts of the operation. And then we have some that are checklists as well, but they're silent. There's no challenge response, or there might be one or two items on there that are challenge response, but not all of it. Okay. I, I was just trying to work out, uh, it, it, since it wasn't part of the before taxi checklist, it why is part of the, por- was- it is the, no, this action is part of the before taxi checklist to take, to the bef- it says the before taxi checklist did not contain a task to ensure that the start locks were removed. That's I'm just trying to solve. Yeah. Think okay. this I don't. I don't know. I think, to why I think, I they forgot this. Um, uh, so in ours, it's it, in the before taxi checklist because you're not going to be able to move anywhere if you don't take the uh, props out of the start lock. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I think it was there. I think later on where it says did not contain a task, I think there's no second task to say, to go back and double check that you did it. To ensure that they're. So there's the just locks. the one task that says remove start lock. Yeah, it's not very clear. Or take well, the propeller off. A little ambiguous, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what their checklist looked like. They didn't put a. I don't have a copy of the checklist. So yeah. Ours does not have a second thing to go back and say, hey, did you remember to do this? It's just there in the checklist. But it really doesn't matter because they found out. Well, they did, um, unfortunately. That's <laughs> yeah. why we're talking. And they, about. they nearly killed <laughs> the passenger had... doing it. I know. Jeez. Oh, um, so let me continue. Uh, item four, after the engine was started or while the occurrence aircraft commenced taxiing for departure, it's likely that slight or rapid transient movements of the engine power levers, were, which were needed to taxi the aircraft, resulted in the release of the left propeller start locks while the right propeller start locks remained engaged. As the power was advanced hmm. through 20%, the positive torque call required by their standard operating procedure was not made, and the engine torque differential was not noticed by the crew. 
As a result, power lever advancement continued, although the right engine torque slash thrust remained near zero. Yeah, because the start locks are still in there. And the mm-hmm. pitch of the uh, You're not going to produce any torque with the blades flat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the engaged start locks on the right propeller prevented forward thrust, which resulted in a significant thrust differential. This differential thrust during the takeoff roll resulted in a loss of directional control of the aircraft and ultimately a lateral runway excursion. Following the excursion, the propellers, which were operating at a high RPM, shattered and splintered when they struck a frozen snowbank. High energy release of the nickel cobalt erosion strips and splintered wood core debris, or debris if you prefer, from the propeller blades uh, penetrated the reinforcement panel, fuselage skin, and cabin wall and resulted in serious injuries to a passenger sitting next to the penetrated cabin wall. Not good. Yeah. That, I'm wondering if due to this, if they, you know, kind of looked at this and said, we probably need to have something in our built into our checklist to ensure that these start locks are definitely not engaged. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, I guess it's just a little bit different. I don't, I've not flown a multi-engine uh, turboprop aircraft that has start locks. So in the, PT6 that doesn't occur because um, um, it's not a direct drive. You've got two parts of the engine spinning different directions, so it doesn't matter. They're not you're not producing torque when you start the engine. Mm. Um, oh, so yeah, start two, really So up. these are the same engines that we have: the Garrett TPE 331. Mm-hmm. Um, probably different, probably larger size ones than what we have, but mm-hmm. yeah. Hmm. Well, it was all all Greek to me because you know I, I didn't even know it they were talking about when they were talking about star locks, but something should have happened. Something distracted them and they didn't notice that this event didn't occur on one side and just kind of accidentally occurred, I guess on the other side. And then we had a differential uh, power uh, for the takeoff roll. And then we had a excursion and injured passenger. Um, I think we need to get all the pilots out. This is I hall boxes and I'm hoping that he's being, very, very sarcastic and I agree. facetious I agree. and tongue I think getting everyone out of the aircraft will include him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't read it. I think we need to get all the pilots out of the aircraft, automate everything, and live happily ever after. Yes, what a wonderful world it would be. Mm-hmm. Unicorns and rainbows. Unicorns, uh, unicorns and Armstrong said. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. The, what was I? What I was going for there? All right. Let's. Uh, anything else uh, that we should take from this? Uh, Miss Stephanie? No, I mean, yeah, that's just interesting. Something I hadn't honestly thought too much about or considered, but that makes sense. If you've got two engines, they both have to be off the start locks. Otherwise, you're going to get thrust out of one and not the other, and that's not going to be good when you go to take off. I was, in my mind, I was kind of equating, like, on jet engines that are some airplanes, the older ones, uh, have, um, like, uh, like a lever, a mechanical lever to pull push up and then once the engine has started then you kind of push it forward and it goes into a detent to prevent mm-hmm. that lever from going back down and if it goes back down then the shuts off the fuel to the engine so it's very the uh, 727 is an example of an airplane that I flew that had these levers that moved up and down and kind of went into a detent position and uh, I've I've seen on at least one occasion rolling down the ta- uh, down the runway and watching one of these little things start creeping downward and then just 
you know, quickly putting my hand up Ooh. there and making sure we're yeah, back just, in the deep end. Don't, don't let it It'll slide It'll definitely back. shut yeah. the engine down if it happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Dale brings up the, the, really the takeaway point here that if you're interrupted during a checklist, restart the checklist. Yeah, that's true. And it's hard to do sometimes, mm-hmm. especially if it's a long checklist. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh right. shoot. Yeah. We have to really start over. Well, I just sent, um, I sent you guys a copy of our, well, just a snippet of the uh, caravan checklist for this mm-hmm. particular engine. So Nick can take a look at it and see what I was talking about there. Like where it is on our checklist. It's just on the before taxi. You see that, Nick? So That's just for your own personal and the, um, edification. The APG crew. Now it's not up there in oh, the ceiling. Okay. It's over Text here. Message. Text <laughs> message. <laughs> Nurse. Ah, I, I, Nurse. I see now. <laughs> I see, said the blind man. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but that's a uh, is that a challenger response or is that a for us? Well, it's an action a single, checklist. so it's just action because it's generally just okay. single pilot. Gotcha. All right, mm-hmm. cool. Anyway, there's so much um, a day glow highlighter being used on that. You might as well just fill the whole page in. <laughs> there's a there's a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of when I used to study for stuff and I, I'd use a highlighter and I ended up doing like everything. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> I did not, I did not create this particular checklist and I would have done it a little bit differently to be fair, but use different, would you use different colors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah pink. I like the, blink you know, and, the blue and the pink. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move on. I think we're just digging ourselves a huge hole. <sighs> Not as big as the one that prop made. (laughs) Yeah, true. Okay. Historic aircraft ditches off Cocoa Beach. I'm sure many of you that listen to our show Mm -hmm. have already seen all this in social media and YouTube and all that kind of jazz. Um, Let's see. This was sent in um, by by several, I think. But this one um, is from Brian Mozizic. Uh, it's sad to see this plane go down, but the plane, the pilot was safe. And the best part of the whole video is about 22 seconds in, a surfer catches a wave really unconcerned with a plane that just went over his head. <laughs> Dude, surfing, man. I'm surfing. Catch a really, wave. really chill, really relaxed. Yeah. Yeah, I don't care. There's a big airplane about to hit me. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, U.S. Naval Institute on Twitter. It's painful to see a vintage TBM Avenger go down, but the pilot did well to safely ditch the plane after experiencing a mechanical issue while performing at the Cocoa Beach Air Show yesterday. We'll get to that list. The Avenger had only been flying for a year after undergoing an 18-year restoration. I think there were a lot of people that were crying when they watched this video. I almost want to cry. 18 years. Oh, my gosh. 18 years. That's a long time to put into an aircraft and then. Yeah. All right. Time to start over. <laughs> Another 18 years. We're going to have it ready in the museum. <laughs> anyway, um, so I am going to play, or I'm going to attempt to play, a video of this TBM Avenger uh, ditching in the uh, Atlantic, just really close to the shoreline, um, which may or may not be a factor in this. Um, so let me find it here and force water landing open. Okay. Here we go. Apparently, uh, there were a lot of sightings of some deity 
a lot of people saying, oh, my God. I wonder what she says when she's really excited. <laughs> Maybe she's referring to the pilot. <laughs> well, I like that everyone just stands around and keeps taking pictures. Like, <laughs> don't worry about the guy flying. The yeah, thing not a lot anything. of effort to go out there and <laughs> try to see if this guy's okay. Um, a couple of little stills here uh, still on this uh, video which is confusing stills in a video. Um, well, that was it. That was the last frame. Um, by the way, when I was reading all about this, um, Oh, let, let me just read a little bit of this article here from, where is this from the aviationist valiant air command pilot makes perfect emergency water landing with TBM Avenger in front of beach spectators captured dramatic video of the valiant air commands, new Grumman, TBM Avenger. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, I see a mistake. I just noticed it. Um, I looked it up because I was trying to figure out what TBM stood for. I knew that T was uh, torpedo. B was for bomber. But then I noticed there were some that were called TBFs and TBMs. And I thought, well, maybe it's like tor torpedo bomber military, to torpedo bomber. So I did my research, found out that M stands for General Motors was the company that happened to make this <laughs> particular avenger uh, if it were a tbf it would have been grumman so whoever wrote this article you might want to go back and do some more research yeah but I, honestly that's the first that i realized that he referred to this as a grumman but uh, anyway that's neither here nor there i guess uh, they made an emergency water landing on saturday april 17 which was what just last saturday uh, at the cocoa beach Air show in Florida. There were no injuries reported in the impressive display of airmanship by the TBM Avenger pilot. And then it talks a little bit about what the TB, TBM TBF Avenger is. And uh, anyway, I, so watching this crew, um, it looks like it came in and then kind of ballooned up a little bit and then mm -hmm. continued back down. I'm wondering if he was thinking that this area of the water was clear. And then all of a sudden realized as he got closer <laughs> that they're like swimmers in his oh, path. Yeah, that, that dude just caught a wave. I'll just go over it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm – no, what do you – I, 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 the thing that I thought about here, Steph, is that, okay, I'm, I'm trying to get into the head of this guy that's flying this thing and ditching it. Um, you know, why he was so close to the shoreline and maybe he's thinking – well, gosh darn it, we spent 18 years restoring this well. thing, and we you know, we want to have the best chance possible of recovering this thing with little to no damage. And so if I can get it as close as possible, maybe it won't go completely underwater. You know, it's nice and shallow. So that's right a there. possibility. My other thought is maybe he's not a swimmer. Well, that Maybe he did well, not have, because he was yeah. at an air show, maybe he didn't have any type of flotation device also. Ah, so the closer to shore, the better of his that. chance of, yeah. I don't know. Okay. That was just my first thought. But, but I was thinking, um, like, there are a lot of people that you he's, he could He's very hit. close to people, though. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know if the ballooning was just, you know, kind of flaring with a little bit, mm -hmm. carrying a little bit extra airspeed still. Too much. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's, I guess we'd have to talk to him to find out for sure what he was thinking yeah. when, when that happened. But I don't know. Uh, just, just a thought that I had, you know, that uh, maybe it would have been better. I don't, maybe not, but maybe it would have been better to go out a little bit further where, you know, you didn't have any chance at all of hitting somebody. But I don't know. I mean, another hundred yard, another hundred yards, you know, offshore probably would have been. But yeah, I mean, you're trying to put it down in an area too where, you know, like you said, a lot of work went into restoring that aircraft. So you mm-hmm. want to do as little damage as possible to it. So you want to be in an area where it looks relatively calm, you know, and along the, the mm-hmm. That's axis true. of the waves. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to catch a wave and sitting on top of the world. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to go, don't want to go perpendicular to them. That's not a good thing. Yeah. Parallel to the waves. Joe St. Clair, uh, this is a possibility. Maybe he's just a pilot that spent his last $1,000 on a good headset. <laughs> Yeah, there is a well, big, he took the headset with him. He was holding so, it, trying uh, to keep it from very being good. wet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't uh, know. I thought it was uh, intriguing that uh, this was an aircraft painted up in one of the aircraft that disappeared. Oh, yeah. In the so-called Bermuda Triangle. I think that there was a PT um, on this. Was it not? Uh, yes. Well, I did a PT about all the rubbish people talk about things like the people. <laughs> but how do you feel about it, really, though, honestly? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, just garbage. Well, <laughs> just- uh, <laughs> me and uh, conspiracy theorists would, wouldn't get on mm. very well. Yeah. So there you go. Well, nah, once uh. I get to know you, you guys would get along swimmingly, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure not. As reasonable adults. <laughs> reasonable. Just Have differences of opinion. To it's disagree. Fine. No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. So sad uh, that uh, uh-huh. it, it turns out, and there's a lot, a lot of videos out there on online, and we'll have some links to some of those in the show notes where you can see the recovery attempt uh, of the airplane. Apparently, according to, I think it was Juan Brown on the Bronco Ligurio channel, that the original plan was to try to put it on floats and move it over to the intercoastal um, waterway and then get a crane to lift it up and, you know, mm-hmm. onto, onto dry land. Uh, but the local, um, what do you call that? The local government um, said, no, you need to get it out of the water right now and right from where it is. Good luck. And so they brought How up, considerate of the local government. Yeah. they were, I guess they were concerned that something would happen and get out of control. Like and do a Suez Canal thing, yeah. <laughs> and block up the yeah. intercoastal. What are they helicopter it out or something? No, they uh, just got a big crane and uh, lifted it. Okay, yeah, I think. Anyway, so that's all we have to say about that. I think, right? Hmm. Okay, uh-huh. it was, quite dramatic. Made for some good video, and uh, we thank him for that. I guess they, yeah, he uh, just had engine trouble. Lost power, and there's really not much he could do other than getting it, uh, ditching it, I guess. Okay. Uh, next one here report West Atlantic ATP at Jersey on August 18th, 2020. Difficulties with roll control. Roll control. And again, this is from Simon's Aviation Herald uh, website. A West Atlantic British Aerospace ATP registration Sierra Echo Mike Alpha Oscar performing flight PT424 from Jersey to Guernsey um, in the UK. What's Jersey CI? What's CI stand for? 
Channel no idea. Islands. Channel Islands. Channel Island. Oh, okay. uh, Channel Islands, okay. probably. Um, with two crew, was en route at 2,000 feet MSL with the autopilot engaged at 200 knots, indicated airspeed. When air traffic control instructed a right turn onto a heading at 340. When a jolt occurred following a left roll, which was corrected by the autopilot. After a second jolt, the autopilot disconnected. The first officer, pilot flying, took manual control of the flight, but found it difficult because the aircraft was pushing left. I guess trying to roll to the left. I'm assuming that means. Um, according to the CVR, she commented, quote, I'm just giving everything I have just, just to hold it steady. However, she did not appear strained. The captain requested delay vectors to sort a minor issue. The captain took temporary control, but experienced the same issue, needing a lot of right input through the aircraft, um, though the aircraft remained fully controllable. Okay, so there's a lot of input uh, in the yoke to keep the thing level, I guess, and control it. The first officer took control again. The captain verified that all other indications were normal and the roll trim was neutral, then requested only left turns on the ILS runway 27 at Guernsey, reporting a slight control problem, nothing major. That's very smart, by the way. I'm not even sure I'd think of that. Just give me left turns. Oh, if the aircraft only wants to turn left. Then. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I'm just saying I probably wouldn't think of that. <laughs> yeah, use it to your advantage. Uh, the captain operated the aileron trim. The first officer commented she thought that it was feeling better. The captain performed an approach brief and mentioned the ramifications of abnormal control surface forces. <laughs> Let me try this again. The captain uh, performed an approach brief and mentioned the ramifications of abnormal control forces during a go around. Again, very good thinking. Uh, the aircraft descended out of cloud at 1500 feet. MSL became fully established on the localizer when the flight directors failed. And the first officer continued flying the ILS using raw data and the aircraft landed safely on runway 27 after a total flight time of 14 minutes, not a long flight. After engine shutdown, the first officer commented that the flight controls felt normal. And so the uh, United Kingdom's AAIB, Air Accidents Investigation Branch, released their bulletin concluding, and that was just recently on the 19th of April this year, as the aircraft leveled off at 2,000 feet and 200 knots, there were two uncommanded left rolls, and the autopilot automatically disengaged, as it's supposed to. The crew found it harder to control, turn the control wheels to the right, but they maintained control of the aircraft. Although the flight director failed during the approach, they made an uneventful landing in Guernsey. Okay, that's kind of recapping what I just said. Extensive testing on the aircraft did not identify the cause, but the operator replaced several components as a precautionary measure. Subsequent Component testing found no anomalies that could be definitively associated with the incident, although it did identify issues relating to equipment maintenance and testing. Uh, let's see. Let's continue down here. Uh, there was no evidence of anything untoward when the aircraft was checked externally with electrical power switched off. The control wheels were free to operate through their entire range of movement without any restrictions. The ailerons, balance tabs, and aileron trim were all observed to operate normally. The rear avionics compartment, where the number two autopilot is located, was checked and found to be dry. All the equipment in the compartment was found to be secure. The aileron control system mechanical runs were visually checked and operated throughout the range of movement. No anomalies were identified, and the control cable tensions were confirmed to be correct. The autopilot SCS and AHARs were uh, functionally tested, and no faults were apparent. Although the right aileron synchro required a small adjustment to bring it into the limits defined in the aircraft maintenance manual. Basically, bottom line here, and it goes through and talks in much more detail about all the different 
bits and parts that they replaced uh, to try to troubleshoot this whole problem. And uh, I guess there was some history on this number two autopilot, um, and uh, they removed it. And in the meantime, the aircraft had been returned to service and flown without further incident. So um, let's see. The AAIB described that the laboratory examination of the component found no anomalies except for autopilot computer number two. The unit had been repaired in 2001 after a problem with overshooting selected headings. So it sounds like it has some issues with roll. It then had been stored for three years, then fitted to another aircraft, and in September 2010 fitted to the incident aircraft, I believe. The AAIB wrote it was fitted to Sierra Echo Mike Alpha Oscar in September 2010, and the operator's maintenance history showed that it had been transposed with the number one computer several times whilst troubleshooting various autopilot anomalies. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what they're saying there. It had been transposed. Were they, mean, were they meaning they, they switched swapped it out with over. the number one? They swapped, swapped them? Yeah. On either side? Yeah, okay. I think so. Gotcha. The AAIB annotated that the overall a- overhaul agency tested the autopilot computer at normal ambient room temperatures to certif- and certify the unit airworthy if the tests were passed. And uh, I guess they passed all the tests, did not find any malfunctions. Um, the AIB subsequently wrote, with respect to the laboratory examination, that the printed circuit boards, the PCBs, were removed and visual examination found localized corrosion, white translucent, translucent staining, and an accumulation of detritus on three of them. The affected PCBs were associated with the SCS logic and autopilot servo operation. Um, the manufacturer responsible for the autopilot design reviewed photographs of the printed circuit boards and stated that in their opinion, the corrosion was probably caused by trapped flux, possibly left after a previous repair. They noted an area adjacent to one corrosion site where there was a visible difference in the conformal coating. The repair records from 2001 were no longer available, so the detail of the work carried out is unknown. So, yeah, uh, I guess the interesting thing to me about this is usually when the autopiling disengages, when it's doing some weird stuff, you have full and you know normal feeling controls and everything else. But in this case, it sounds like some component of the autopilot, the servo for the roll of the ailerons, mm-hmm. must still have been engaged, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what I. That's I what I. That's what I took away from it, but mm-hmm. I don't know for certain. Obviously, interesting that they really couldn't find anything specific to i mean there are you know yeah. all these various little things that they came across but not certain which uh was the main they, they do point out though that if the aileron servo clutch uh had failed to disengage it would have uh created a, the- a heavy feel in both directions oh not mm-hmm. just, not just in one. one direction um Odd. so they weren't sure it seems to me like they didn't really come up with a cause for this so yeah you know, it's a case of Keep flying it and hope for the best. <laughs> Good luck. Well, they replaced, you know, yeah. some of the um, the main components yeah. there that hopefully yeah. <laughs> would have been one of the causes. So they replaced the Aile- aileron servo, components. autopilot computer number one, computer number two, autopilot yeah. controller, accelerometer, all the things that might be the usual uh, suspects there for the, the issue. Yeah, so. so they threw uh, some darts at the dartboard and... <laughs> So they exactly. came up with yeah. a number. You know, sometimes <laughs> you know, I uh, I had one. I had a 
control restriction in a Hawk once that I was uh, flying, uh, and it was in pitch. It was a definite uh, restriction that you had to push through to get full and free movement. Mm-hmm. And I uh, bought the aircraft back, landed it, and um, the engineers spent days looking, couldn't find any reason for it. So Are they sure said, it wasn't would you mind that? taking it up again? <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Is that an autopilot? That was no. That was um, uh, actually what they found when they inspected the uh-uh. the, the pit controls. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah. So I, I, I took it up again, and uh, lo and behold, managed to find the same problem. When I landed, I said I had this problem again, and uh, on the taxi in, I'd noticed that it had freed. So uh, I went, but it was fine on the ground. Hmm. Uh, it, it took a lot of investigation. Turned out the aircraft battery was not secured properly. Oh. And when you took off, the thrust moved the battery rearwards a little bit until it impinged on the control cables hmm. uh, right near a uh, well, that's uh, not good. You know, a wheel. Yeah. Uh, and when you braked on landing, the battery it returned up. to its normal position. And it looks fine. <laughs> oh, cool. Yep. Uh, we detect no problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Well, I was a bit they found miffed that, not... that they made me go and fly it again. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? Hey, let's get this you guy to fly it. Not really. You fly <laughs> yeah, it. Right. <laughs> Tell me what you think. Exactly right. You want to come in the back seat with me? And, uh-huh. and if we crash, uh, you'll be able to know exactly what yeah, went wrong. Test pilot. Yeah. Did they get, give you extra pay for being a test pilot? Yeah, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little disappointed it wasn't this little animal in the uh, little little. <laughs> What do you call that yeah, thing? Cage. Yeah. yeah. Oh well. Little exercise wheel. Exercise wheel. Thanks. Or something like a little animal like this caught in the cables. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Last but not least. Last but not least, we have this. Um, let's see. NASA's Ingenuity Mars helicopter flies successfully twice, and. Nick, since you kind of suggested we talk about this, I'm going to hand it over to you, sir. Well, I didn't. I Actually, it was part of my plain tale. Oh, okay. But when I realized that it was very likely to be in the news, mm. I gave uh, Liz the text, and she turned it into those notes. Uh, oh, okay. So I'm Liz, happy to we'll bring Liz on, it. then she can cover it. No, okay, no, you ready, happy. Liz? Because, uh, <laughs> is it in the, is it in the plain tale, though? Should we just wait for the plain no, tale? No, it's not. Okay. No, no. I, I okay. replaced it with something else. Oh, and and well gave then. Liz the text so that she could use it. Well, tell us what, um, I mean, people that don't have never heard of the Ingenuity Mars helicopter. I can't believe there's anyone in the world that mm. has an interest in aviation, doesn't know there's a well, helicopter sitting yeah. on the uh, planet Mars, uh, a drone uh, called Ingenuity, and uh, became the first aircraft in history to make a powered control flight on another planet. Uh, much of the joy, I have to say, of the uh, Jet Propulsion Lab and the staff there, because when I saw them cheering with this damn thing got airborne, I was going, well, hey, they, they, they were really excited. It's like they? they really didn't think it would I work. Mean, <laughs> well, yeah. you know, you put a lot of you put a lot of work in engineering into something, and until it actually flies. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And this not. is not like building a drone uh, here mm-hmm. on, the, uh, on Earth, because... Of course, the atmosphere is so different in Mars. The gravity is different. They had to do a lot of theoretical 
work to devise a system that was going to stand a chance of flying. And I think the fact that they got it all right and it worked uh, was absolutely brilliant. So it's solar powered and it first became airborne at 3.34 in the morning, uh, EDT, Eastern Daylight Daylight Time. Time. Yep. There you go. Uh, Or 12.33 Local Mean Solar Time. (laughs) That's the time on Mars. I oh. think the only people that care about that is uh, the the I don't think that's on my Apple Watch. The day, <laughs> the, day on, the day on Mars is referred to as a soul. Yeah. Someone in the will I know this, that, this but, rover yeah. thing's got a few arms, but I didn't see a wristwatch uh, on it. But uh, there you go. Um, it, uh, it took off. It uh, climbed to 10 feet uh, and then uh, did a nice hover for 30 seconds and then descended back down again. So it worked. But I, I got a few facts about the um, the whole thing, which I thought was quite interesting because the, the drone, I don't know if you've uh, bought a drone, Jeff. Uh, I bought a cheap one from yep. uh, US Robotics uh, uh, Solo that um, they the, the company went broke. Uh, but they still had these really quite natty drones, and I bought mine for about $360 mm. in B&H Photo, and it flies brilliantly. But, uh, you know, a DJI Phantom will set you back about $1,500. Um, uh, this one will set you back $80 million US dollars. Wow. Uh, with another $5 million in operating costs. Um, uh, and... the, the to be fair, it, it does a few things, not much more than your average drone, mind you. Um, however, it can fly in an atmosphere that's only 1% as dense as that on the Earth. Hmm. Uh, so it would be equivalent of chucking your drone out at 100,000 feet and flying it around, wow. <laughs> which would be pretty impressive. Um, so it's a good thing that the gravity on Mars is uh, just a little over a third uh, here on Earth. So it doesn't need, actually, to generate as much lift as it would here. Um, It flies completely autonomously, since radio signals can take up to 20 minutes. Uh, Apparently, uh, Mars is on a a sort of elliptical orbit, so at times it's close, at times it's far away, and radio signals vary from 5 minutes to 20 minutes. But um, if since it can only fly for 90 seconds... If you got into trouble, by the time you sent a command, <laughs> it would already have crashed. Too late. Too late. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, that I, I didn't read that particular bullet point that you have there. And I was thinking to myself, trying to wrap my head around, how do you control something that, you know, is, uh, we have latency sometimes doing like this internet stuff and, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. the, <laughs> doing the stream and all that kind of stuff, but not 20 minutes. It's not that bad. No. <laughs> <laughs> How do you? So that would probably pre- make podcasting impossible. <laughs> it would. So it's got some sophisticated uh, autonomy in it, and it has to be okay. pre-programmed for yeah. each uh, flight. That makes sense. Now. Um, it it yeah, it has contra-rotating props and a big span, of course. To uh, it needs it because of the thin atmosphere, about four foot span, one point two meters, and they spin at a pretty impressive two and a half thousand revs per minute which is pretty fast. I, mean, I think that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, it can talk to Mars Rover through a radio link. Uh, it carries two cameras, okay, one kind of looking forward and a cheap, nasty one looking down. I think one of them is only black and white. A cheap, um, nasty one? Yeah, one. probably only a couple yeah, of million. cheap, nasty black and white one <laughs> looks down. Uh, it has a Garmin LiDAR for ground mapping, and uh, I use a laser altimeter 
Hmm. I suspect that's probably the least expensive uh, or least weight uh, penalty uh, hmm. a laser aluminum. Um, it can charge itself up through its pa- panels, uh, but it can only fly for 90 seconds, I guess, before the, the batteries run flat. Hmm. Um, so it can uh, go about 160 feet, uh, 50 meters downrange before it has to turn around and come back again. Um, its design life is only for five flights. So that's all. I guess that's all they've guaranteed it for. But warranty runs out after five flights. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> uh, and there's not a lot. No, not many people you can complain to on Mars if uh, if <laughs> you have a fault. Um, so that it comes to about seventeen million dollars per flight per ninety seconds of flight. Liz is asking if there is a option for an extended warranty. <laughs> you no? could well be. Yeah. yeah, it'll be another eighty million. Uh, I'm sure that I'm sure that the um the those folks are already calling the JPL um like yeah. th- two or three times a day. Hi. This is to uh, let them know. Just what we've been trying to get in touch with you. Jeff from Progressive. You know that your <laughs> your yeah. car warrant your uh, yeah, helicopter exactly right. yeah. Mars helicopter we- warranty is about to expire. This is your last <laughs> chance. Uh, they did their best to uh, test it here uh, on Earth uh, to try and see if it would actually cope. Uh, they they took it up to the Antarctic or down to the Antarctic, because the Antarctic's at the bottom, isn't it? Um, so they, they flew it down or took it down there to see how it would cope with cold temperatures, and they flew it in a vacuum chamber uh, with the equivalent uh, atmosphere of Mars, but because the gravity here is a lot more, they put a string on top of it and sort of hung, you know, a, a spring and a bit of string so that uh, it would simulate Mars gravity. Oh. Uh, and, of course, the one fact that everyone's latched onto, which I think is absolutely brilliant, and if you're going to do something, do this, they uh, cut a tiny square of fabric about the size of a postage stamp from the original Wright flyer and put it on this drone. So it's carried a bit of the first uh, powered aircraft ever to get airborne and taken it all the way to Mars, which I think is fantastic. So one other very interesting fact, which I Mm. actually kind of like from this week, I forget where I saw it, somewhere on a news article on Twitter, I think. Um, But the world's uh, current oldest living person was born in January of 1903, which means that they were alive, although very, very young, uh, when the um, original Wright Flyer made its first flight and over- alive for this flight as well. Wow. Pretty fantastic. That's incredible. Like 118. <laughs> yeah. What's that? I said that, and they put that person on the Mars rover. <laughs> right. <laughs> we haven't heard from. So. Yeah, huh? It just puts things in perspective, you know, yeah. how far. You know, they also have some uh, video footage of a Martian walking up and seeing this little piece of fabric and go, <laughs> and throws it away. Yes, that's right. What and there's this? another Martian in a rocking chair with a shotgun that you know, <laughs> is being trying get to get off my front shoot. porch. <laughs> yep, that's the one. Get off my lawn. Get off my yard. He's on the front porch. Get off my door. Get off dirt. My <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. <it> is. <laughs> plot of dirt. Oh, dear. But uh, I think it's absolutely brilliant they've managed to achieve this. I love the way that it actually dropped out of the bottom of the possible show title. It, it, it get off my being specifically dirt or designed something. just to be able to drop out, sit on the ground, and then the drove, you know, the rover drove off and left it there. Right? Very clever. Rover and rover, go on. Right over. How does that game go? Red rover, red rover, red rover. Send Stephanie right over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Sorry. 
Oh, I like that one. That's yeah, a great story. that's good stuff. Good stuff. Wow. That's pretty cool. You know, you wouldn't think about how difficult it is and all the things they had to think about, uh, the atmosphere and the gravity and everything else to make that thing actually work. So now I can see why they oh, were absolutely. so excited. Yeah. That, hey, the stability, really uh, yeah. Did our calculations correctly. Yeah. It only weighs just over a kilo. It's uh, really very impressive. Wow. All right. Very good. Well, there you go. That is what we have for you this week in aviation news. And now it's time to get to know us. It's the time of the show where we kind of talk about what we have all been doing since the last episode. And I believe the last episode was about uh, exactly a week ago, last Friday, I believe. Right? It was. I have no idea. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> I've lost track of all day and time. I don't know. What is we, it? We now, uh, Where we am now I? use PTUK as our warm up show. That's yes. right. We're the yeah. main feature. There you go. <laughs> Not really, but it kind of works out that way. <laughs> Thank you, PTUK guys and gals. Um, yeah. But uh, I know it's. It was last Friday because I only had two days off before I had to go back out. No, that's not right. I had like five days off. Never mind. <laughs> I was going to complain. <laughs> Never mind. As bad yeah. as I am. Okay. Well, I only have two days now to get this darn thing edited yeah, and published it. by Sunday night before I leave on my next trip. But gotcha. that's neither here nor there. Well, if if it's all right with you, I'd like yeah. to go first because then I'm actually going to leave for a little bit of time. And oh, I'll sure. tell you why here in a moment. Leave us. Um, but I do need to go here okay. uh, momentarily. Yes. Um, so, yeah, since it's been fairly busy week for me. So since last week when we did the show, flew all day on Saturday and Sunday, which is very nice. A couple of nice days for, for flying, sunny weather. Um, not much exciting happening there. Just a lot of time spent going up and down to 14,000 feet over and over and over again. Um, and then I took a quick trip up to New Hampshire. A very good friend of mine from med school lives up there, and I went to visit them for um, not a very long amount of time. But uh, interesting trip in that uh, for the second time now, there was a medical emergency on the aircraft while still parked at the gate before we pushed back to leave to come back to, to Charlotte. I'd attended to one previously similar, happened at the gate. Um, this one was it went very well. Um, just a young lady who, um, for uncertain reason, um, fainted, had a little faint episode at the rear of the aircraft. So they had her in the back galley by the time I got there and already starting to come back around, but a little bit confused, unsure of where she was. And EMS was there very quickly. So mostly I just... Um, you know, assess the situation, make sure that she was, vital signs were stable and that she was starting to improve with her ability to think and, and, um, made sure that, you know, because she was laying down when I got there, I didn't know if she had hit her head or, mm. um, anything like that. So just making sure that she wasn't tender or sore anywhere, could move everything normally, could follow commands, that type of thing. Um, and everything turned out very well. So, um, yeah, my, my thanks to, you know, the, the emergency medical system was there very quickly. Um, so it was very good. And, um, yeah, all's well that ends well there. No one else responded, just me. I was the only person who got up to attend oh, to that for particular medical situation. And basically the entire aircraft was boarded. I think there were five people who hadn't gotten on the plane yet. So wow. very full of people. Um, I'll bet there were some other medical professionals on board that just didn't want to get involved. Uh, you know, I take it back. Actually, a nurse did get up as well, but oh, okay. because it was a small space um, yeah. and it was, it was um, looked like it was going to be a positive outcome no matter what, she just sat down and yeah so it was good 
Um, so that was interesting. And then I've just been, um, I'm, I'm off work this week, which is oh, very nice. I'm just curious, Steph, did they upgrade you or were you already upgraded? No, I should thank um, American Airlines, though, because they did deposit some um, um, bonus miles into my account for me. Oh, okay. For right, attending yeah, to the, nice. which was, which was very know. nice and unexpected and certainly not the reason why you get up and assist in a you know, potential emergency. You just want to make sure everyone's oh, safe and healthy and a so. good outcome. Yeah. But that was, that was very nice and very unexpected. So my thanks to, to them. Um, I was already sitting in 1A just to make Nev proud. Uh, <laughs> which didn't mean it took me, you know, about 20 seconds to get to the back of the air because there were people standing in the aisle still and, you know. Um, but yeah. Uh, no, it was a good situation. And, and hopefully she's doing well. Um, like I said, by the time um, um, EMS showed up responsive, you know, answering questions mostly appropriately and um, had friends with her who were able to provide some, well, she was, you know, a little confused as you might well be if you pass out or faint. And I know. worry if I've ever in that situation has been the victim and mm. you ask me questions and I answer in my normal way <laughs> and people will say, well, that's entirely inappropriate. You're not answering <laughs> Take them questions off the appropriately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but no, hopefully, hopefully they were either able to identify a cause or you know check things out and make sure that everything was you know as it should be. And eventually, she was able to get on her way to her final destination. She did not take that flight, obviously. Um, had friends with her, and they were more than willing to stay with her and stay behind and make sure everything went okay. So that was that was good. Good outcome. Excellent. Um, and then I was starting to say, yep, off work this week. So just been doing a lot of work around the house. Can't tell anything. I have not gotten to the office yet. This is due for a thorough cleaning uh, as well. Um, so I'll get to that hopefully next day or two. Um, and the reason I have to leave here, basically the next minute or two, is to go pick up my car from the car dealership. I took it in for some scheduled maintenance as well as being very overdue for an oil change and tire rotation because I've been neglecting that recently. Um, disc, disc. And... Yeah, I took it in early this morning, eight o'clock. Should have been done, you know, by noon at the latest for all the stuff that they wanted to do for the the scheduled maintenance at sixty thousand miles. Um, and they did. They called me around eleven thirty. Said, "Well, um, the good news is all of the mechanical work is done. The bad news is when we were parking your car, we um, um, it made contact with a light pole <laughs> in the parking lot, and there is a slight scuff on the bumper. So we're going to replace your bumper. Can you leave your car here all day?" So they just called me to say that it was completed. So now I also have a brand wow. new rear Wow, I'm not bumper. very impressed with Jeep's bumpers. If a slight scuff requires an entire replacement. <laughs> well, well, the reason being, so they're the... they're plastic. I mean, they're pla the covering is plastic. Um, but this just um, solidified my, uh, my previous decision to, uh, I've owned quite a few Jeeps now, and you can get them painted, like painted body color. And I have never done that because the black plastic ones are basically plug and play. So if you you know, oops, take a corner too close or something and ding one of the fenders or bump into something with the bumper. If it's bad enough that you want to just trade it out, they cost, they're, they're, you can get them on eBay for like 75 to $150 <laughs> and just replace it. You know, I'm going to say if I had a Jeep, I'd want it to have some honorable wounds, you know, no, covered in you know, dents yeah. and bashes and like I've driven it through a desert a few times. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know. I maybe, think you and Steph have different ideas about mm -hmm. the appearance <laughs> of the vehicle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, 
So, but apparently it is, it all's all fixed. So I want to get there before they close to inspect it and just make sure that they have repaired everything. You better get going. They close at six. Repaired. Right? Yeah, I know. I got to go. Yeah. So. Anything else? So you were off this uh, past week or next week? Off both. Yes. Oh, wow. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I've got some, I've got stuff going on. It's just not work at the moment, which is kind of right. nice. So, but yes. Um, so anyway, I will rejoin as soon as I can. Um, I just need to go retrieve my car. It's about 10, 15 minutes down the road, and then I will return okay. sometime during feedback. Okay. okay. Drive right. safely. See Bye. you. Bye. All right. Captain Nick, how have you been, sir? Captain Jeff, I have been uh, fine. Thank you very much. Uh, a busy week. Um, I had uh, my first uh, photo shoot of hmm. the year because uh, – you know, lockdown is pre- uh, sorry is easing progressively, and more and more things are opening up. So uh, I had, had my first client out and took the five completely lunatic dogs up, and did my best to t- take pictures. Um, and, and that's been pretty much it, actually. Uh, tomorrow, uh, there's one of the uh, oh wow, doggy. great shot. Um, tomorrow. Uh, I am um, the bold screen opens, so off uh, for a practice. And then the other good news is uh, second vaccine is uh, on Tuesday. So mm-hmm. be all jabbed up and uh, feeling very happy. So um, that's really been it. Uh, nothing sadly flying related, although I'm well ahead on plane tails now. So, uh, oh, nice. you know, if things do get busy, I've, I've got a couple in hand. So. We've got something to do. Okay. So much like uh, we receive feedback and other items in our email, and we also have, and I've, like, uh, was it was the last episode I showed you the, uh, Dave Ogden did the um, Boeing 717 3D printed model. So oh, I yeah, have snail yeah, mail. Did you uh, receive great. anything through snail mail um, this week, uh, Nick? From the no, post? No. No? Okay. <laughs> yeah, eventually. I, tried, <laughs> I, w- I was going to mention it when we came onto the plain tail bit because I'm talking partly today oh, uh, okay. in the plain tail about uh, Rolls Royce. And today I got a, a lovely, or it was yesterday, t shirt. Uh, and when you say snail mail, this one came from Canada. It's got a brilliant uh, Rolls Merlin engine. Um, logo on the front and of course it's made by red canoe so they make lovely t-shirts uh so thank you very much indeed for producer liz for firing that in my direction uh she knows i love uh things like this and she thought they were two of my favorite subjects she got that right um yeah it was sent on about the 6th of february (laughs) yeah february 7th she sent it (laughs) So yeah, you just got it yesterday. So it's taken a while to get here. Yeah. Um uh I'm I'm think the postman uh you know just had to claw his way through the wilds of Canada and <laughs> shoot a few bears and then he probably had to uh lasso uh, a a whale and ride that to Greenland and then make his way over Greenland and what he did after that I'm not sure but it took him a long time to get here. He arrived, arrived looking haggard in his snowshoes and his his beaver cap with the tail <laughs> hanging down. Some uh, bear blood yeah. stained his That's clothing. 
delivered it personally, and then yeah. with a sigh, he apologized and turned and set off back for Canada. Yeah. And then he keeled over dead. <laughs> but the most You've important thing. You've seen the thing, film, is it? The Revenant or something? Revenant, no, yeah, I think. It? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's exactly what it was like. Oh, I see. For him, poor chap. Oh, yeah. wow. Heroic effort to get to you. Well, that's, but anyway, yeah. I've got a lovely T-shirt. Yeah, mm. I mean, that's the important thing. Got the T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Yeah. All right. Excellent. So, let's see. At last show, I was thinking I only had two days off, but I was wrong. I had five days off. And on... Um, Got the show published on Sunday, did my normal singing stuff over the weekend, and we had some confirmations, you know, more than more uh, singing than normal, uh, both Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, and Sunday afternoon. And so I had to, had, it took me a little bit longer to get the uh, show uh, edited and published, but I got it published, I believe, no, it wasn't until Monday night that I finally got it out there. Sorry, it took a little bit longer. I had a uh, an appointment to see a uh, an oral surgeon on Monday for a consultation because so you know many of you know me and probably consider me to be a very wise wise man and wise uh, well yeah. no 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 not wise ass Liz wise in <laughs> my in, in, incredible intellect well I have six wisdom teeth which um, is not not common and uh, four, uh, four wisdom teeth uh, on my left, the left side of my jaw or mouth and uh, regular two on the other side. And sadly it has nothing to do with being wise. They just call it wisdom teeth for some stupid reason. Anyway, I have been uh, dentists have been trying to convince me since I was a Lieutenant in the U S air force back in the, in the mid eighties that uh, I should, get these things removed. And I was very stubborn and said, Nope, I don't want to have anybody messing around with those things. And, uh, finally my last dental checkup, my dentist was saying, nah, you got a cavity in this one on the upper right and I can't get to it. And so definitely have to at least pull that one. And I, but I recommend because there are some, you know, gum disease stuff, some things going on in the mouth she was concerned about. So she finally shamed me into getting this consult with a uh, oral surgeon. So I did that on Monday and uh, they're going to set up a surgery for me sometime, probably maybe May, but maybe in uh, June, probably more likely. And uh, it'll be the full uh, general anesthesia and everything else. And I've never, ever been. Mohammed's mother's a dentist. You can go to Iraq. Oh, I could go to Mohammed. Uh, his mom is a dentist. You're very welcome in your clinic. Okay, well, I'll just hop right on over to Baghdad then. Uh, that won't be a problem. Um, but anyway. I'm just curious. When when they take your wisdom teeth out, do they go in through the top of your head? or well, Then I'll, then I'll definitely the not be wise. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess through, through my mouth. And I, I was thinking about that because they said that in my case, because mine's kind of complicated and some impacted um, – stuff going on in my jaw and all that kind of stuff. And he said, I think you'd be much more comfortable uh, being completely out of it. Uh, general anesthesia. But I'm thinking, don't you, Have you ever had don't they ever? Anesthesia? No, I've never had. I've, no, Liz, I've not ever had general anesthesia. I've never had an, an operation slash surgeon surgery or anything. I've never been into the hospital for them to work on me. I've been there to visit people and the birth of my children, but not anybody operating on me. So I'm not really, 
not really excited about this. Anyway, so general anesthesia, don't they put the thing over your nose and mouth? How are they going to operate uh, on my mouth? They knock you out with an injection oh, okay. uh, or I a hammer. They can keep you under using gas, but they yeah. don't have to. I they guess I could just, just like put some stuff in my nose, like a nasal cannula or whatever they call it. Or an IV. Well, I don't know. Anyway, I don't they, want to talk about could. it. It's making me yeah. kind of feel queasy just talking You're about some it. Special drugs, right? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just going. ask for the good stuff. Okay, pay for the good stuff. Yeah. Well, and then he said, you know, in your case, so this is kind of a little, uh, I was trying to read between the lines. Uh, he says, you know, at your age, and this is a pretty, you know, extensive kind of oral surgery. Um, it's probably going to be, you know, you're going to be out of work at least a week, <laughs> at least. And then he said, I, re- I would recommend to you this new painkiller thing that basically numbs uh, the back of your mouth for like, 72 hours or something like that. He said that the downside is that um, because it's so new, most insurance companies don't pay for it. And I, and I said, well, how, how much is it? And he said, 250 bucks. And I go, oh yeah, for sure. I don't, that's not a problem. I don't want to have pain. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. What well, does that mean? You'll be dribbling and unable to control your tongue for like 72 hours. Unable to control my tongue like you or like literally physically. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know. I, I I'm not looking. As I said, I'm probably going to be out when this happens. Uh, there will probably be a week or so or more that we're we're hiatus. not going to be able to do a show, a hiatus of the APG. But um, and and hopefully I don't die when I'm under general anesthesia. But you know, you never know. But you know, it was nice knowing well, you. Well, if I prayed, I would you? say a prayer for you. But thank you. You're going to have to do without that, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, Liz is saying, uh, can we take life insurance out on you? And I think you actually can do that. You can, you can take life insurance out on people. Just, yeah. yeah. When I uh, when I was in the Air Force, I bought a motorcycle. Everyone was so convinced I'd kill myself. They <laughs> they stopped contributing to the football pool. Sorry, the football pools, which is you know kind of gambling on football results uh-huh. and decided to take out a life insurance policy on me instead because <laughs> they think they thought they had a better chance of getting their money back, you know, getting some money. Thanks for your payout. support. <laughs> yeah. I thought you guys were my I friends. Ha. <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah. I only came off three times. Yeah. Sedation works great, according to John McElroy in our live audience. Um, yeah, so... Uh, initially my dentist thought I was just going to have a, what did, what do they call that? Uh, Liz, the, uh, twilight, twilight sedation sleep, sleep or something twilight like sleep. that. She says, you know, you're, you're kind of like in and out of sleep and there you're kind of awake and aware of what's going right. on, but you no. just don't really care. <laughs> well, that's me normally actually. Uh, but, uh, in this case he goes, yeah, I think you'd be much more comfortable, you know, completely out on, oh gosh. Anyway, so that's what I have to look forward to. Not. Um, so when you've had these out, you're going to be like the rest of us, stupid. Just, yeah, yeah just not as smart as I am now. Just like a regular <laughs> stupid person. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I'll probably be a vegetable. He, one of the things he said is that there it could be because it's so close to one of the nerves in the back of my mouth on the left side that that sometimes they'll like the, this part, your left lip area and your chin area. Uh, is like permanently like it never recovers and it's always numb for the so rest of your life. Over? Yeah, I'm not going to. Pl- I have stopped playing the trumpet anyway, so I guess it's not a problem. I said, "Well, does that mean I'm not going to be able to talk and I'm going to be drooling all the time?" And he said, "No." I went, "Oh, okay, good." So we'll Jake see. Jones knows the truth. Here. Not all the time. The truth is out. What is the truth? 
A lengthy cover-up story to hide your upcoming butt lift surgery. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> wow. How did you figure that out so quickly, Jake? Yeah. Uh, I got a butt lift for you, Jake. Um, I'm not even sure what that With means. Your foot. Yeah. Um, so, well, I'll keep you up, up to date on how that all is transpires. Um, I think in June, maybe, right? Well, yeah, I think June, because there's a, this, this facility, they do the surgery uh, in... That's not a hospital. It's a their own oral surgery. <laughs> it's a veterinary surgery. It's, a, it's it's like a walk-in closet somewhere in a hotel. <laughs> and they asked me about my kidneys too for some reason. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, wake if you up wake up it. in a nice cold bath. Um, yeah, could you ask them for pictures, please? So no, that we can put them on the. Show. That was the thing that yes. really got me. Uh, yes upset about the air force um dentist he said well i'd like to have these things out and and, and it's going to be you know like a major surgery and we're going to videotape it and i'm going to invite some of my <laughs> fellow doctors to, to be there and what, i'm thinking wait a minute i don't want to be the center of this freak show so i said no is it i said is, is it something i have to do or is this elective surgery and he said it's elective and i went okay i elect not to do it Main man, Micah, make sure they save the teeth. You can make cufflinks in a Titex set. <laughs> Thanks, Micah. No, that's not very pleasant. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, I was on a three-day uh, three trip uh, Wednesday through Friday this week and um, really enjoyed uh, flying with this co-pilot. I'd fly with, flown with him once before. He was a guy that uh, we, uh, Steph and I invited to go with us to the uh, White Duck Taco place, you know, shop or whatever they call it. And he... Um, he elected not to. Of course, he didn't know we were going to the White Duck Taco place, and he was kind of bummed out when he found out that's where we went. But uh, so I flew with him again today, or last couple of days. Really nice guy, and he also accompanied me uh, last night uh, for a minute mini meetup with David Lieb. Dave Lieb, who is in the chat room, and he lives up in in Massachusetts, not far from uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And he drove down and picked us up from the courtyard, and uh, I suggested that we go to one of my favorite places in that downtown Providence area called Trinity Brewhouse. And we had a great meal, and I took some, not took some, I recorded some audio. And so let's have a listen. Where is it? Well, it has been quite a while since we've had an audio clip from a meetup on our show because of this whole C-19 thing, pandemic. But anyway, uh, meetups have resumed, and uh, I am here in Providence, Rhode Island, with uh, someone who I had a meetup with in Memphis, Tennessee, a little over a year ago, January of uh, 2020, before the the year of COVID, and uh, his name is David Lieb. And just to remind you, he is a, a musician, uh, guitar and uh, keyboards, and he's also a music teacher, and he's just an all-around great guy, basically. And uh, he lives up here in this area in Framingham, I think. Is that where you? Yeah, okay. Uh, but he drove down from there to uh, Providence to uh, meet up with um, myself and my first officer, Chris. And we're at Trinity Brewhouse, which I really love this place. Great beer, great food, and we're, and of course, great camaraderie and conversation and all that jazz. Anyway, so we're going to let uh, Dave say 
a quick something to you, and then we're going to, I don't know if Chris is in the mood for having a microphone in his face or not, but we're going to find out. It's a teaser. Hello, everyone. Hello, APG community and crew. It's good to be uh, down here in Providence with Captain Jeff and First Officer Chris here. Um, yeah, Jeff said we're having a having a great time. Just uh, had an early dinner and a cu- couple beers here. So, And uh, it's really great because uh, it's been a very, very interesting year since we last saw each other. And especially as a uh, full-time musician and music educator, it's been, uh, it's had its challenges, but some, uh, some great things have also come out of it. So thank heavens for APG keeping me sane at least 50% of the time. At least 50% of the time. And as, as I was watching you talking to this microphone, I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, he is not wearing a mask. This is dangerous. Dangerous, I'm telling you. Anyway, well, here is my FO, Chris. Hello, everybody. I'm Chris, Captain Jeff's FO now for the second time. And uh, we have flown two very fun rotations together and gone to some pretty cool places. And he's very enjoyable to fly with. He's got excellent airmanship abilities. I just hope that he can learn the box and the airplane a little bit better. Hey, wait a minute. You didn't tell me you were going to say this kind of stuff. I'll I'll edit this out. But it's been a pleasure to fly with him. This place is great, and I look forward to future rotations as long as he's still on the fleet. Oh, my gosh. Maybe we should tell the folks about your landing today. No, we're not going to talk about my my landing today. It was very windy. If you can walk away from it, it was a great landing. Yeah, I, I didn't think it was that bad, actually, for the wind. Con- <laughs> wow. Man, I think that it was a... Yeah, I guess my perception of being an old geezer as I am is getting just really skewed because I, I didn't think it was that bad, especially for... You know what was it? Thirty something knot crosswind. It was challenging. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was interesting. Anyway, thank you so much for your support, Chris. <laughs> hey, I'm no, I was. <laughs> no, it's funny because uh, I I'm kind of at that phase of my career now. I feel like uh, in the Air Force when the uh, DO or the wing commander goes out to fly an airplane, <laughs> they always put up with a very very experienced instructor pilot to go with them just to make sure that they don't crash the airplane i kind of feel like chris is my very experienced instructor pilot flying with me today <laughs> you do you got extra pay huh chief pilot yes okay all right well well thank god i have all these guardian angels looking after me anyway that's okay i'm okay i'm cool with that actually so anyway that's it enough for this uh, meetup we're having a great time and uh Hope to do many, many more of these in the future. And for those of you out there who are in areas of the world that aren't recovering as quickly as we are here in the U.S., you know, we we're, we really feel for you, and we really hope that everything gets back to normal as quickly as possible. And maybe one of these days, probably not this year, maybe next year, we'll have another big, you know, worldwide APG event again because that's just a great time. So anyway, that's enough. And uh, signing off, back to you in the studio, Jeff. Well, thank you, Jeff, for that live report at Trinity Brewhouse, Providence. Very good. I gave your uh, FO a good slapping. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> he's a really good guy. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was really laid back flying with him. And you know, he's the kind of guy that, you know, just pretty much does everything, all the, you know, show up into the cockpit and he goes, okay, everything's done. I went, oh, cool. Love it. I did do some <laughs> cold yeah. weather. I, now he, it, right now we're having a cold snap here in the, in the U S and in Canada too, I, I would suppose. And, uh, so I put my, you know, I was wearing my, uh, uniform jacket, uh, which is something that is an optional thing. It's the summer uniform time frame at my airline. And, but I always kind of hang on to that jacket a little bit longer because I don't want to be uncomfortable. I get cold easily, I guess, you know, I'm an old guy, but, um, so I had my jacket with me because I actually, you know, took the time to actually look to see what the temperatures were going to be in Omaha, Nebraska and Providence, Rhode Island. Apparently Chris didn't do that. And he didn't have, you know, he wore his summer uniform, short sleeve shirt and that kind of thing. So I felt sorry for him. And I did all those walk arounds in all those cold places. Like what a nice guy I am. You, you know. are absolutely so. I think uh, you know, kinda... we had a rule in our airline that whatever dress the captain decided to wear, everybody else on the flight deck had to. Well, did you dress? Did same. you like coordinate before you showed up for a report, or did you just automatically no. have everything with you? At, well, uh, I I always uh, wore a jacket. I know, so but I mean, what if about an your... FO pitched up without a jacket? Then, uh-huh. uh, you know. I'll go, where's your bloody jacket? Make him feel good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he should probably show up, assuming that you wear the whole uniform. And then if you yeah. say, let's not wear he, the jacket. If, uh, he can always hang it in the crew room and leave it there till his next trip if uh, it's not needed. Yeah. Or he can okay. put it in his suitcase or whatever. Yeah, makes sense. I like that. Maybe I'll make that a rule as well. I'll just call up everybody and say, <laughs> you better... Damn well have your jacket. Well, it was the company's rule after the new uh, uniform. They wanted everyone to look the same. Yeah. Well, that makes sense, actually. And I'm kind of one of those people that, you know, I think we should wear No, I shouldn't say that because then people are going to get upset with me. But I think we should wear it year-round, actually. We, in fact, when I was first hired, and for quite a number of years after thereafter, uh, it was um, a required. It didn't matter if it was summer or winter time. You know, you had to wear your jacket. So, well, not, I happen to think it looks good because once you've been on the flight deck for a few hours, your, your white shirt starts to look a bit raggedy and yeah. crumpled. So you don't really want to get off with a sweat stain right. back and crumpled shirt. Plus you all the stuff that you with a jacket. on your shirt. You know, it's yeah, covered up. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's it. Um, back out again on Monday. I'm flying with uh, Brent, my uh, one of my favorite uh, co-pilots to fly with. And we're going to have layovers in. He doesn't criticize your landing. No, he does not criticize my landings. Thank you, Liz. Yeah, he has respect for me and his elders. No, we had we had a lot of fun. He, he would look, be bad mouthing, bad talking, you know, with I'm sitting in the cockpit and he's saying goodbye to people and saying, you know, rude things about me. And uh, trash talking. Yeah, trash talking <laughs> me. So that was fun. Um, let's see. What was I going to say? Oh, um Brent and I next uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we have a layover in um, Oklahoma City the first day and then over in Buffalo, New York um, on Tuesday. And uh, right now it looks like we're going to be meeting up with the wonderful APG librarian, Miss Tiffany, and uh, we'll likely go to somewhere that has barbecue, probably. Uh, So anyway, looking forward to that. And... um, that's it. Coffee fund. Coffee fund time. Thank you, Liz. So here we go. Jeff, 
Hit it. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. Okay, Dave, will you sing with me? I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. Again, that's Jeff Smith, the Jingle King, and uh, Coffee Fund. Why don't you consider becoming part of the Coffee Fund cadre or the Coffee Bar Club, which is uh, our group of people that support us and the show financially, and a couple different ways to do that. And one of them is something we like to call the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And since the last episode, we have, oh, look, Dave Lieb is there again. He and Chris Randall and Kevin Dryden uh, all contributed to our coffee fund. Thank you, guys, for that. We do appreciate it. Another way to support the show financially is something called Patreon. You can become a patron of the show and uh, like a patron of the arts. Yeah, our show is not really art, but, you know, use your imagination. Abstract art. Thank you, Liz. And uh, ironic art. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it's like a thing where you uh, pledge a certain amount and then every episode, um, you know, you give us that m- amount that you pledged and it's great. So check out all of that by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Captain, incoming message. Okay, you'll remember. Back a week ago, we one of the yeah. oh, it was the actual uh, last. I, I, I can try. Yeah. I'm not sure if I can. <laughs> well, well, you know, just, just try hard. You can do it. Yeah. Um, so uh, we covered our last piece of feedback last week, and we, I uh, misunderstood what Liz was trying to tell me uh, in my ears. I thought she was telling me that Alan from Talon was with us in the chat room. And so I thought, oh, okay, we can, you know, we're going to go over a little bit, but let's go ahead and cover his feedback. And then I come to find out that I misunderstood what she was telling me and he's not there. He wasn't there, but he is here today, right? Still, is he still with us in the uh, live audience? I think he is. He was, I don't know. If he was here there. with us earlier. So hopefully he's still there anyway. Um, and so we kind of talked a little bit about it, teased this thing a little bit. And then I thought, or we all decided maybe it would be best if we just, um, kind of move this to the next episode, which is now. And because the thing that he has referenced and sent us a link to, um, is really, really interesting. Yep. He's still there. Good. Um, and, um, so I'm, I'm going to reread his, uh, feedback, uh, to us that he initially sent, but before I do, he sent in some email after last show. And he said, hello again, APG crew. I didn't expect to be writing again this soon, but I just finished listening to the APG episode 468. To be honest, I was amazed that my feedback made an appearance on the show so soon after I had sent it. I'm glad you found this topic to be worthy of further discussion and getting my single piece of feedback to show up on two different episodes is definitely a big deal, as Captain Jeff suggested. Yeah, I was being sarcastic, though, I think. Anyway. Um, I noticed that the pronunciation of Talon caused a little bit of confusion. I hope 
you don't mind me commenting on that. Now, in this case, Alan, I don't mind at all. <laughs> in case there are linguistic enthusiasts around, as a general rule, with exceptions to the rule, of course, in Estonian language, the stress is placed on the first syllable of words, meaning that in the name Talon, the emphasis is on the beginning of the word A. Uh, the I is pronounced short. So Captain Jeff's first mention of Alan from Talon sounded perfect. Let me read that again. No, I'm not going to read that again. Uh, oh, yes. I can also try to help out Captain Jeff with the confusion about who is Miami Mike. As Dr. Steph also suggested on the show, it was something from the earlier episodes, probably pre-200, but I can't find the exact episode now. I've quite recently been listening to the earlier shows to catch up with all of the APG history. I still, ooh, this sounds like, yeah, I still have episodes 212 to 237 to go. Then I'm all caught up. Strong symptoms of the APG syndrome, I guess. Yes, sadly. Uh, good that I got my medical renewed just recently. <laughs> anyway, if I recall it correctly, someone in a feedback referred to Miami Rick as Miami Mike, likely by accident, but the name made a few more appearances afterwards in the following shows. I guess Miami Mike is long forgotten by now, at least by me, because <laughs> I wasn't really sure what that reference was to. But now I kind of sort of remember that whole thing when somebody referred to Rick as Miami Mike. So, okay, going back uh, to I, I don't remember that, I must admit. Yeah. Um, I, I've been back to the beginning once and worked my way through. I'm not going to mm -hmm. do it again. <laughs> well, so Nick, this is where you, as I just did, pretend that you are recalling that time. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, see? That's, um, yeah. That, that's, that was quite funny, actually. I know. Uh, I mean, Mike, that was even was though good. we were both in our 60s, we still have really good memories. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> what are we talking about? I don't know. Uh, where, yeah, where, where am I? What am I doing here? Okay. Um, in conclusion, to my not-so-short follow-up, thanks for covering my feedback so soon. I look forward to listening to the next show for the continuation of the discussion on the Airbus incident, and I will do my best to join the live chat during the next recording. Yes, he's here. I've joined the live audience in the past a few times, but living in the UTC plus two time zone, UTC plus three in the summer, which means right, right now, right? That's UTC plus three. It's like in the middle of the night right now, I think. Um, usually makes it a bit tricky. Until next time, have a wonderful day. Best wishes, Alan. And he says, P.S. If anyone on the crew or in the community is interested in having a look at uh, occasional photos of my aviation life in Estonia, then my Instagram, my Insta handle is Captain Talver, C-A-P-T-A-I-N-T-A-L-V-E-R. -E He's still here. Yep. And uh, wow, 1 a.m. Wow, good on you. Thank you for sticking with us, Alan. And now let me read the original feedback. Uh, greetings to the whole APG community. Finally, after several years of listening to your wonderful podcast, I've reached the point where I've decided to send you my first feedback. Well, actually, now, well, never mind. Uh, first, a few words to introduce myself to the community. My name is Alan, and I'm from Tallinn, Estonia, an IT engineer by day, but also an instrument rated commercial pilot. And as the most recent addition to my aviation related achievements, just this Monday, I also passed my flight instructor skill test. Yay, and enter the, the uh, applause like we did last time. That was uh, brilliant, yes. Yeah. Well done. Great. I have been flying since 2016. When I started with my private pilot training, it was a couple of years after having received a demo flight lesson as a birthday gift. 
The idea that I could fly an airplane was planted on that day. Interestingly enough, it was only about 10 years ago when I had my first flight ever on any aircraft. It was a holiday trip to Greece. Before that trip, I was highly convinced that airplanes are an extremely dangerous way of traveling, and I would definitely use ground-based transportation whenever I need to travel for the rest of my life. But those first experiences opened my eyes, introduced me to the world of aviation, and I quickly became hooked. So when I was 30 years old, I decided that I had to take action and at least get the private pilot license with a plan to then decide if I want to take it any further. We have a saying in Estonia that the appetite grows while eating. When put into the context of my flying endeavors meant that after having received my private pilot license, I quickly decided that I definitely want to go on. A year later, I went for my ATPL theory training in Bristol, followed by instrument rating back in Estonia and a commercial uh, single engine training in Germany. The idea was to move towards a commercial aviation career, but COVID has imposed some adjustments on my plans. Luckily, I got the offer to start as a part-time flight instructor, and I'm really excited about it, even if it wasn't in my initial plans at all. So I decided to send you this feedback today because I recently found an interesting article, which I'll link below. Usually there isn't much noteworthy going on in Estonia, at least when it comes to aviation. But a few years ago, there was an accident in Tallinn with, uh, with an Airbus A320 making an emergency landing with both engines badly damaged, one being on fire and neither one producing any significant amount of thrust. The result were minor injuries due to heavy touchdown on unprepared surface and a total write-off of the airframe. But overall, the crew managed to handle the situation well and avoided much worse possible outcomes. Luckily, they managed to glide the airplane back to the airport, even though the touchdown was short of the runway. In my opinion, the you know, based uh, compared to my landing in Providence with the 30-plus knot crosswind, I'd say my landing was better. Uh, in, my, <laughs> so <would I. laughs> in my opinion... The article is very interesting, is a very interesting description on how a minor fault in the system combined with human factors led to an extremely serious situation, a perfect example of a Swiss cheese case. I just finished listening to your discussion on Airbus system redundancies in episode 467, and that article is a nice follow-up to what you discussed because it describes one case when a crew experienced a sequence of flight control computer failures and had to fall back on mechanical backups like controlling pitch angle via trim wheel. It would be interesting to hear what the experts on the APG panel think of this. Well, you're in luck, Alan. The experts are here. Um, well, the expert... Captain Nick. By the way, the this accident was also briefly covered by you in the APG episode 315 shortly after the event, but by now much more thorough analysis of what happened is available. I will also link the official investigation report below. I think that's it from me for this time. I hope there will be a day when I can also meet you in person. And if you should, for whatever reason, ever happen to be in or near Estonia, I would be very happy to meet, greet, and show you around. But until then, I wish you all the best. Alan from Tallinn. And so now we get to the article or the incident to which he was referring through this uh, article in, um, I think it's like a blog. Uh, it was actually Admiral, Admiral Cloudberg, uh, and they posted this on medium.com. The Dark Side of Logic, the near crash of SmartLink's Estonia Flight 9001. And so should I read it or should I distill it down to what well, it's maybe best if I just start reading it? What do you think? Nick? It's a pretty long uh, yeah. description, quite honestly, yeah. and gets pretty technical. 
uh, a lot of it's uh, well, you know, outside I, my experience. We both well. we've both read it and actually had some discussion about it. And I think maybe it would be best for our Airbus expert, or the closest thing we have to it here, because mm. he has experience in the Airbus, not necessarily on the narrow body world, because uh, from what I understand, Nick, this has some systems that aren't uh, exactly um, relatable to the systems in the wide body Airbuses that you've flew, or maybe it's because of the age of the aircraft or whatever, but I... I, I yield the floor to you to tell us about this incident. Well, yeah, um, it, it is a difficult one for me because the uh, structure of the flight control computers in this particular um, Airbus A320, 21 was it? A320. 20, yeah. Um, it was completely different, at least and certainly it appears to have different functions to what I'm used to. So... I, I'm pretty much, uh, you know, going, I don't quite understand how this all links together. Um, on our system, we had uh, three primary computers and two secondary computers. Uh, they appear to have two computers which are named ELAC, which is uh, elevator and aileron control, and two computers which are called SEX, which we would have called secondary computers, which they call spoiler elevator computers. So I think uh, it probably defines uh, the controls that each of these computers can operate. But it, the logic behind uh, the way all this is set up is different to what I'm used to. So I'm kind of going, I really don't understand exactly how this all works. But what I can say is that um, when you're doing uh, touch and goes in uh an Airbus, uh, you need a trainer beside you, of course, because there's one guy who's learning and the trainer is coaching him through doing the circuit. But actually, when you get the aircraft on the ground, uh, in normal uh, flying, uh, most uh, line pilots would never do a touch and go. I mean, you can do a rejected landing so that your landing is so bad, you've had a really bad bounce or something's gone wrong and you decide to reject the landing with your wheels on the runway and you take off again. <clears throat> but that's very, very rare. On a touch and go, trainers know how this works. And I tell you the problem is because once the airplane is on the runway, the aircraft goes right. All the weight on wheel switches have worked. And what I'm going to do now is go into ground mode and I'm going to trim to zero uh, and um, set myself up for you know the next flight effectively. And I think that trimming to zero also has an effect of taking out any, any possibility of the tailplane uh, being able to lift the nose wheel off again unexpectedly. So it trims forward to zero. Um, if you're going to get airborne again, because you're not actually going to sit and taxi off, you're going to put the power up and get airborne again, you want to have the trim in a suitable setting for takeoff. So as that trim wheel winds forward, the trainer will say, um, he usually leaves the pilot in control. He, uh, he usually says, stand up the thrust levers. So you move the thrust levers from fully back where it's been as you've landed to the, the sort of vertically upwards, which is like you know, about third or half thrust. And he 
grabs the trim wheel and winds it to a suitable setting for uh, a takeoff. And then he says, go. Uh, and you push the levers full forward toga. And then as you hit about 140 or whatever the speed is, he'll say rotate and off you go. Uh, so it's quite common for the uh, trainer to grab the trim wheel and stop it from continuing to rotate. And that's something that this guy was doing, which is quite normal. Um, as they climbed away, a lot of uh, warnings are inhibited because at that stage of flight, the Airbus want you to concentrate on flying the aircraft. And when you get to an appropriate altitude where you probably got time to look at warnings, they appear. And uh, they were getting warnings f caused by a problem with the trim, the movement of the uh, tailplane at the back that was triggering a fault with both the uh, ELAC-1, one of their flight control computers, and ELAC-2. And at one point, they had faults on ELAC-1 plus ELAC-2. So two flight control computers were simultaneously showing faults. Now, they were occurring like as they were turning downwind to go and do their next circuit. And they were just going, oh, look, one of the flight control computers, or in one case, both the flight control computers controlling in primary ones have uh, got a fault. Oh, we'll just reset them. Now, <laughs> as Jeff... <laughs> I suspect any pilot would go, these reset buttons are just like circuit breakers, uh, effectively. They take the power away from the computer and they reapply it again. On a computer, of course, you can reset a computer. If there is a transient fault that's just flagged up, that reset may get rid of the fault and it shouldn't reoccur. If you've reset a circuit breaker and it continues to pop, or in this case, reset a computer, and the fault continues to reoccur, your problem isn't transitory anymore. You have got a problem with your flight controls that's triggering this warning. Uh, and anyone <laughs> who flies around with continual reoccurring problems with your flight controls is pushing their luck. That's just my opinion, having flown the damned airplane for 25 years. Mm -hmm. Um, they are very rare to have flight control faults come up. I was my, uh, this, I was, uh, it was my understanding, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. It was my understanding, first of all, uh, you're probably gathering from what he's saying with the instructor and touch and goes that this was a training flight uh, with an airplane that this airline had just purchased not long before, but it was not a new airplane. It was operated by another company for like 15 years or something like that. So it was new to this company and they were using it for training flights and that's why they were doing these touch and goes. And, um, it was my understanding that, uh, that it, they were not surprised that every time they went through 1500 feet, which triggered the, uh, uh, uninhibited the, uh, the, uh, warning system, they, they do, as you just said, and basically reset the computer. And that was, I guess, part of their standard operating procedure for doing these training flights. And it wasn't, you know, a big surprise to them. However, and as in many of these accidents, incidents, accidents that uh, we call the Swiss cheese model. It just so happened that the one time that they forgot to, uh, I guess they got distracted doing something else. Maybe they're changing seats with students. I don't know. I, I don't recall exactly what the, the issue was. They forgot to reset that elevator um, aileron computer 
that they've been do, doing every other circuit. And so now it's just staying there. They haven't reset it. So it's basically out, right? That computer is not working now. And then it just so happens that they have another issue. And this is, of course, the other ELAC, ELAC number two, that fails. And then now you've dug yourself into a really big hole, right? Because now both ELAC computers are basically have shut themselves off. And when that happens, it reverts to a mode which basically leaves you with uh, manually trimming the airplane for your pitch control. And now, did I have that right? Is that what you gathered from the uh, from the uh, article? Well, I I got I I, I got that they had at one point got both computers uh, failed, mm-hmm. um, and I'd never actually worked out um, how the aircraft got into mechanical mode. Yeah, I think that's what happened. It was just like they they were doing the same thing over and over and over again. But that one time they forgot to do it, and then the I guess again the system they did what you just described, doing the touch and go and stopping the trim from going to zero because we were going to do another takeoff uh, on this touch and go. And then the the first one, the number one, is already is it's it's shut itself down and now the second one goes which is now doing all that is in control of everything goes oh okay there's a fault and so that one shuts down too so now they have just basically forced the whole system going well, into this manual yeah, mode that makes that makes a lot of sense yeah um let me point out that normally you wouldn't get any flight control a flight computer faults doing touch and goes mm-hmm that is not normal. Oh, so I got uh, from it that it was something that would happen and then it wouldn't, but no, you'd not I think see it. It was, a, it was a recurring fault on this aircraft, oh, but okay. it wasn't something that should normally have happened. Okay. Uh, and the only reason they allowed themselves to continually reset the fault was because there wasn't anything in those days, anything specific in the uh, aircraft operating manual telling them that they could only reset it twice or three times Mm -hmm. uh, as is often the case with uh, resetting a circuit breaker you know once you've done it a couple of times they say no don't do it anymore um but they they i think uh, for me this is is a matter of airmanship you don't continually reset flight control computers um because the fault that's continually recurring isn't going away the fault is continually being flagged you have a fault the fact that you're resetting the computer means that it's just looking, going back to square one again. The fault's recurring. The computer's going offline. The fault is still there somewhere in the system. Anyway, um, you're right. They they come down and they're on the ground. They've got a double uh, ELAC failure, ELAC one and two. And when it comes to uh, uh, retrimming and put the power up and pulling the stick back to go again, uh, I think the first officer's flying it. Um, he pulls back and he gets no response. And this is because the both flight control computers have are now off. Um, and I think the, I, I, I misstated something. I'm sorry. Um, that's right. By by saying that because the ELAC one and ELAC two computers weren't operating, that it at that point it shifted to um, completely manual trim control for pitch, but. There's more to the story, which I think you're about to talk about. There was some kind of a system back another computer. <laughs> it was like four computers that have to fail for this thing to go into that mode where you're manually 
operating a, a trim uh, surface or a trim switch or whatever it is um, to uh, control the pitch of the airplane. And uh, this thing is something, some kind of a computer that controls the rudder and stabilizer or something in the back. And apparently, well, there was I, like a, I, I'm not certain what happens next, Jeff. Mm-hmm. So if you know, okay, off you go. From what I remember, it's been a, uh, it's been a little over a week since I've read this, but I think that because this was a, com- um, a computer, a um, well, it's a flying computer. Uh, they got this uh, airplane from another company, and they they hadn't it hadn't been on property for a long time. But anyway, the people that were maintaining this, and they're not sure what what company did this at what point it happened in its history. But the investigators found that there was like a um, a uh, what do they call this thing? A uh, like a servo, a plunger. Let's see, what is it called? Um, it's just a microswitch, isn't it? Well, it's the, something the that, that actually um, uh, impinges upon some microswitches, and so yeah. and the uh, the Airbus requires a certain oil to lubricate this. Um, I'm trying to look for the exact um, term for this thing, but it's like a like a. Um, this is an awfully long document. Like Forgive a, us for yeah. not having this on the tip of our tongue, but it's pages worth. It is. It is. Yeah. And well, you know, we'll have a link to this in the show notes, and people can read the whole thing. I think it's fascinating. But basically, somebody, a mechanic, um, used the wrong lubricant on this, and so because it was a higher viscosity than it was than was called for, and so it basically meant that this this uh, this uh, part wasn't moving smoothly um in the like it was like a piston in a in a cylinder it wasn't moving properly it was kind of catching up it wasn't going all the way to a full extent to actually depress like two or three different micro switches and because of that that computer goes oh well this is not working <laughs> so you got the, the the elac computers both of them now aren't shut down and this thing is supposed to take over but now it's going well I, um, this is not working either anyway basically you're seeing that just the 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 trail of breadcrumbs or the tiny little holes in that in the slices of swiss cheese are all aligning perfectly where the wrong oil was used um and this piston wasn't activating the micro switches and then that computer turned off and then basically they found themselves in a world of hurt because when the student pilot at the controls at the time went to rotate on this touch and go nothing happened he says rotate you know like what are you doing and he says i'm i'm rotating i'm pulling back as hard as i can nothing's happening and then the instructor pilot takes over and same thing realizes that um you know uh he's got to take over i think that just the power coming up was enough to get barely the airplane heading upward again skyward again because there was not yeah. enough room to um to uh, stop or uh, abort the takeoff from that point because they would have been off the end of the runway of course if they know what <laughs> what was about to happen they may have decided that that would have been better but you know they had no idea what was happening with the airplane That's right. just, they knew they I couldn't think, control um, it. the the coincidence was that the guy the first officer because he's obviously in training he bounced the aircraft mm-hmm. uh, for a very short period a little yeah. over a second and that was just sufficient for some of the logic to turn, uh, but uh, not all of it. But effectively, they've ended up with um, two computers off. They they you know they didn't reset one. One's failed. Um, the sec one should have taken over, 
But um, that went down when this piston failed to move, and Sec 2 had already shut down for the same reason, is the explanation. Mm. Um, the, this logic is is out with my experience, because this I don't think this could have happened on, on our aircraft. But, ha- but, but who could imagine that something like this would happen? I mean, the engineers designing this thing, well, there's no way this yeah. is possibly going to happen when you lose all these different computers. At the same time. Exactly. <laughs> so they end up in the situation with uh, all four computers can, that are ca- capable of controlling the elevator and the horizontal stabilizer have now failed. And the elevator moves to its sort of fail-safe position, which is neutral. It, it all, It's designed to be moved to, to a flat position so that it provides no input. Um and at that point, that's when the trainee pilot tries to pull back on his stick and climb away, but nothing happens. So um, the, the, a pair of red warnings appear on the screen at this point, and this is something that you get in the simulator and you go, oh, my God. Uh, flight control left and right <laughs> elevator fault comes up, and that is red, and the bells will go off. Uh-oh. And uh, up comes a message saying, Use manual pitch trim only, and you get a loud, continuous chime because this is about as severe an emergency as you can get with the flight controls. Mm. What that means is your only pitch control is to use the trim wheel now. Um, and both elevators are no longer operating. So um, apparently, unaware of the nature of the problem the instructor announced that he has control attempts to pull back with a side stick didn't get any response the pain the aircraft begins to climb they've used the word plane i hate that <laughs> uh, but just it's just basically um the effect of the natural uh position of the uh, tailplane is uh, and their speed uh, and the power of the engines getting them airborne and from then on, they're in about the worst situation you can be in an Airbus. You're flying the aircraft using just one form of mechanical backup to your tailplane. It's a very it's using the trim wheel basically to fly the aircraft in mm. pitch. Uh, I think they had roll control, but that, yeah, that so was too. it. Yeah. But, of course, every time you reduce power, the aircraft's going to pitch. You've got to compensate every time you put power on. The airplane's going to pitch up. You've got to compensate. And it really is a course control. It's very hard. That point onwards, having gotten partly been responsible for getting them into this situation, the trainer does a very good job of taking it downwind. Um, oh, First, they've got to touch the ground, haven't they? Because they've got to wreck both engines. I forgot that. Yeah, point. I was going to say, I can't remember exactly where that was in the sequence, but yeah, uh, tell yeah. us about that. That's that's a bad thing. You kind well, of hurt the engines. He, uh, yeah. he, he briefly considered aborting, uh, and he reduced power, which, um, of course, makes when you don't have that pitch-up force from the engines, the aircraft's going to pitch down. But And as it did, he realized that he didn't have enough runway left. Uh, but the gear is tra- already traveling. Uh, and when he decides to change his mind or applies full power, uh, and actually it's that point he selects the gear up, uh, it takes too long for the airplane to rotate and they touch on the runway with no gear, just on the engines. Uh, and, of course, they they 
dragging these engines along the ground. They're wrecking the engines as they're skidding along the ground on the engines. But eventually, you know, they they get enough power and the airplane rotates and gets off. Um, Yeah. It says, normally uh, the loss of lift trigger by retracting flaps is countered by the fact that the aircraft is nose up. But in this case, with the aircraft flying almost level, the retraction of the flaps in combination with the brief reduction in thrust was sufficient to put the aircraft into a descent. So uh, they effectively put the aircraft in a go-around situation, but taken power off and then belatedly decided to put it back on. They touch the uh, runways, the engines on the runway, which wrecks the engines sufficient to eventually cause them to fail, but they're still making enough power for them to climb away. In this awful situation, they climb away, turn down wind. Uh, I, I don't think <laughs> what happens next is, is quite a miracle of flying, actually. Um, the aircraft was very uh, initially at a very steep climb. Uh, the instructor's still trying to fly the airplane using the stick, but actually, you know, he's got all these warnings telling him that only the trim wheels <laughs> going to work. Exactly right. Uh, the flaps have jammed. Number two engine has actually uh, caught fire. He's got manual trip pitch trim only, and it's the safety pilots that's shouting that at uh, the instructor. Um, and the instructor now starts to move the trim wheel and get the aircraft back under control. Um, they uh, end up in a bit of a, a PIO, a, a big oscillation. So they're going from <laughs> 7,200 feet a minute uh, climb, oh, sorry, dive with the sink rate terrain, terrain, whoop, whoop, pull wow. up going off and then cranking it into an into a climb, they hit about 2.4 Gs mm. as they try and get their airplane going up. Managed to get the airplane stabilized uh, and get downwind using a combination of trim, roll inputs, and engine thrust. Um, with both engines now on fire, the safety pilot says they put out a mayday uh, and um, they've got flaps locked. They're in all no elevators um, max the they put it this way the messages on the ecam warning panel will just be out of view there'll be so many of them yeah so like you're screwed this point. <laughs> yeah In exactly red. right and <laughs> they're luck. oscillating their way uh kind of downwind mm. um they managed to get their plane on a 180 degree turn to return to the runway put out a mayday um and um you know, basically, from that point, they do a, a, a remarkable job of getting the airplane pointing at the runway. But I think uh, the engines give up. Uh, they've been quite badly damaged, and they um, hit the ground uh, short of the runway. If I'm in the undershoot, yeah. if I'm not yeah, mistaken, yeah, the undershoot, yeah, yeah, um, and they survive, which is pretty remarkable. Um, so there, there really was for them a nasty combination of, um, mechanical failure through an engineering fault, um, mechanical failures that were causing their computers to drop offline, a really nasty, uh, an unexpected coincidence that killed all four flight control control computers at the same time, um, that led them to this. Uh, plus then, you know, 
the airplane won't fly. Will it fly? Shall we abort? Uh, mm. Let's lift the let's lift the gear. Oh, now I can't abort. Um, damaging both engines, uh, and I'm going to fly away. It, it kind of absolute. I suspect it was bedlam on the flight. Yeah, uh, but I'm going to go back to the point I originally made. Um, you don't fly around in a fly-by-wire aircraft with that is controlled entirely by flight control computers with computers that are continually indicating faults. You know, every time you do a touch-and-go, a fault is appearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you don't do that. You go once, perhaps twice. Now, I'm putting this on the ground and I'm getting this looked at because – this does not happen on an Airbus. But what about uh, all the training requirements, persist. Nick? You got to get those training requirements. Those. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. But uh, <laughs> you know, proof of the pudding. Having said that, they managed to survive. So, and other than that, it was, it was no, no big deal, really. <laughs> no. Yeah, you're right. Remarkable job of uh, flying I've skills. I've done a terrible job of explaining that. No, I wish I, no, uh, I mean, had more knowledge of this system. It, it's not easy at all. It's a lot of a lot of information in there. And and uh, again, I'll point everybody to go look at this um, article written by uh, yeah. whatever, Colonel Colonel Sanders. No, that's not right. Uh, Admiral, uh, <laughs> Admiral something in uh, medium.com. We'll have the link. Admiral Cloudbird, Berg. Uh, but it's, um, fascinating to me that, you know, that this, you know, had the, I guess, well, there are so many things that had it been done another way, then they would never have been in this situation. But the final straw to me is that, uh, the wrong viscosity oil used to lubricate this little piston that, you know, basically said, nope. Uh, and shut down, down those other computers. It's like, oh, Wow. wow. You, know. you think about it, using the wrong oil is it's like putting glue in there instead yeah. of a lubricant because right. uh, viscosity of oil can be really re- very different. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and it, if it hadn't, the, if it had been used in normal operation, this none of this stuff would have happened. It's just that, as you said, Nick, in this training environment and doing these really not probably something that Airbus ever expected anybody to do with their computers. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it just wasn't the normal, normal ops for, for this airplane to do this kind of thing. No. <sighs> now you wonder uh, why we do all our stuff in uh, the simulator, right? <laughs> because yeah, exactly well, right. This won't happen. Um, yeah. Well, I am sorry that this took so long, but it, uh, I mean, there was no really quick way to do it. There's a lot of, a lot of meat to this article. And I think I, to me, it was fascinating. And, um, I think Nick would agree that this is, uh, just good reading. And, uh, and it really helped me not being, an, I've never been qualified to fly an Airbus. Um, and so I don't know all these flight computer stuff. And honestly, I was kind of surprised because I didn't realize that there was that mechanical back. I think you, you have mentioned it in the past, Nick, that there is a pitch, mechanical pitch thing that actually has cables that go back there. And so if you lose all your electricity, you still have some yeah. what, in, control. In the early Airbuses, there was a, a rudders and the um, mechanical mm-hmm. pitch um, for the tailplane. Right. Um, now that has been superseded now yeah. by an, a second electronic um, 
backup. Yeah, the rudder, which does yeah. the effect. It has the effect of being a mechanical backup, but it's not actually made of rods and pulleys anymore. Right. It's uh, has its own logic and its own power and mm-hmm. its own separate system. So, so yeah, fascinating stuff and uh, really a complex airplane and uh, amazing the engineering that went into it. Um, really must be said. And oh, there we go, Alan. Thank you uh, very much. For, I'm not going to thank him. That was really hard. Yeah, well, and I thanks. Didn't do no, a very okay. good job. So. I mean, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> Alan, thanks a lot for that. Yeah, Nick, yeah. for what it's worth, I think you did a fantastic job. So <laughs> I glad just to I, sit here and listen to it as I me too. Yeah. back into the show. I, I don't think I got it even close to right. So, if there's anyone out there who wants to write a short um, summary of it, Captain Al, uh, then please go ahead. Yeah, if you are the but Miami just don't send it Airbus. to us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Miami Rick, if he were here, I'm sure that he would be able to explain it all. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. No, he, does, he doesn't fly the Airbus. Anywho. Well, he will one day. Yeah, it's kind of looking that way, isn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Plain tail time. Plain tail. Yeah, we're past time. Sorry. Um, it is now time for this week's installment of the best part of the show, which is the old pilot's plain tails and... This week's episode is entitled the, oh, we're going along with this alphabet theme. Last week was A to L, right? No, A to J uh, aviation. And this one, yep. this week's is the K to R of aviation. And here we go. The old pilot's plane tales, the K to R of aviation. After last week's tale, here are a few more letters of the alphabet to ponder on. K is for Kilo. Not any old Kilo, but the ones we dialed into our ejector seats. In the early days of Martin Baker seats, the sole method of propulsion was a solid propellant charge inside an expanding telescopic tube attached to the seat that forced it out of the cockpit. This provided enough clearance to survive an ejection from an aircraft travelling forward at a reasonable speed, but at low speed and altitude, ejection often failed because the parachute just couldn't inflate fast enough. Fitting a larger charge risked permanent back injury, which were already common enough, so the additional height needed for full parachute deployment was achieved by the addition of a rocket pack. The rocket propellant was fitted into a series of tubes under the seat pan, fired by a lanyard that pulled out a sear pin once the seat was well out of the cockpit, and exhausted through a pair of rocket nozzles to boost the seat clear. Even this two-stage thrust system gave the pilot an acceleration of 12 to 14 Gs. In the version of the new rocket-powered seat in the F-4 Phantom, it was thought that the angle of the nozzles was important to ensure the best trajectory and also make sure the thrust line ran through the centre of gravity. Therefore, on climbing in, we had to remember to dial in our weight in full flying kit into the rocket pack pitch control unit. Embarrassingly, my stature plus my extra heavy flying gear slightly exceeded the maximum setting, but I decided that being the fine company that Martin Baker is, they would have built into their calculations some extra fat 
to account for my extra fat. In future seats, it was discovered that the back seat occupying navigational consultants were either lying about their weight, a common conceit, or forgetting to dial in their kilos, which had a negative effect on ejection. As a result, this requirement was designed out of future seats. L is for Lepus. The Lepus flare was a night illumination flare of several million candle power that could be dropped by an attacking aircraft to render the ground below visible for ground attack. Its duration could be set on the ground, and once deployed it would descend slowly on a parachute, giving off a brilliant yellow-tinged light. Those who had the rare pleasure of diving into this swinging globe of illumination could be affected by a variety of forms of disorientation, not ideal when hurling your little pink body at the ground. Night vision was, of course, destroyed, whilst the swaying line between light and dark could give false horizons. It was frequently described as flying inside a goldfish bowl. A Royal Navy pilot describes approaching their carrier to attack targets being towed behind. After finding the ship on radar and dropping the flares, they dived onto a large ocean cruise liner. They hoped that the passengers' eyes would have been partly blinded by the brilliant flares and might never see the formation of armed phantoms barreling down on them. The same pilot describes an F-4 having problems landing on Ark Royal at night and diverting to Naples short of fuel. On arriving, they discovered that, whilst a single controller remained in the tower, the airfield was closed. Apparently, the runway was clear, but the lights were unavailable. With little fuel left, the crew said no problem, and they tossed a leapus flare into the overhead and landed safely in a blaze of light, if not glory. M is for money. As a few unfortunate captains know, the monetary status of your airline is vitally important when away from base. Should the rumours of the imminent collapse of your outfit spread, you are quite likely to be refused such essentials as fuel for your return journey. If your airline has unpaid bills, it's also quite likely that you will return to your mighty steed to find it surrounded by bulldozers and being held hostage until accounts are settled. As a consequence, most companies give their captains credit cards to cover unexpected payments, and in some cases they have set off with briefcases full of banknotes to cover expenses in cash. Should the sad moment arrive when an airline finally goes bust, the crew might be lucky enough to find out before anybody else. Stories have been told of the captain quietly waking their crew and creeping out of the hotel in the dead of night before being held personally liable for the bill. After walking a discreet distance, taxis were summoned, and once at the airport they were faced with the difficult task of getting their aircraft refuelled, planning their return trip, and finally getting airborne before the news broke. Some actually made it. 
Not every money story involves bankruptcy. Some airlines regularly gave their captains pockets full of cash just to bribe their way around the world. The Virgin flight, the first on a new route through Russia, was once forced to land at Moscow because the clearances agreed at government level hadn't quite filtered down to the air traffic controllers. The captain was faced with an enormous bill for landing fees and fuel so that he could return to London. Credit cards were refused, and he resorted to having a whip-round amongst the passengers until enough cash could be found to allow them to escape. It says something about the passengers that they had enough pocket change to cover the sizeable demand. N is for N number. Back in the day, there was no real way to identify one aircraft from another, a fact that frustrated aircraft spotters the world round. Arguments were already in full flood when, in 1913, the first passenger-carrying airline was started with the catchy name St. Petersburg-Tampa Airboat Line about who owned the air above a territory. The viewpoints wavered between either no state being able to claim sovereignty to every state having the right to do so. It was at the Paris Convention of 1919 that such matters were settled, and at the same time countries were allocated a unique first letter, followed after a hyphen by a combination of four other letters or numbers to be used to register their aircraft and become the aircraft's radio call sign. Initially, only five nations were given such letters, and the rest of the world were lumped in together and had to share. Each country would use a national aviation authority to issue a unique registration, which was recorded in a national register and on a legal certificate of registration. During the conference, each country was given a few letters, and for its aircraft, Great Britain chose G and the United States of America chose N. They also had K and W, but since these letters were already being used by various radio stations, and the Navy had used N since 1909, the US government decided that it would reserve N for itself. The choice was not particularly popular, and the journal Aviation wanted W in honour of the Wright brothers. However, by 1927, the air commerce regulations required N for international flights, and eventually everyone had to toe the line. The US also chose to use numbers after the N, which followed a trend common before the N was required, when C was used for commercial aircraft, S for state, and P for private. After adopting the N, airworthiness categories followed, which were C for standard, R for restricted, and X for experimental, and later on L for limited. This remained in force until 1948, when only the N was required. Registrations can be reused after an aircraft is demolished by a careless driver or honourably retired. For example, November 3794 November is used by a Mooney M20. 
The registration was previously allocated to the aircraft in which Buddy Holly died. I wonder if, on a quiet flight, they ever hear the crickets. O is for orifice, uh, specifically the one belonging to Miss Tilly. Miss Beatrice Schilling, known as Tilly, was a young female engineer working for the Royal Aircraft Establishment at RAF Farnborough during the Second World War, who came up with an alarmingly simple modification to prevent the SU carburetors of the Merlin engine from cutting out. If a Spitfire pilot tried to follow an ME-109 with its fuel-injected Daimler-Benz engine into a dive, he couldn't bunt his fighter, he had to roll it inverted and pull. This was because the float-controlled carburetors couldn't supply fuel under negative G, and the Merlin would momentarily cut out, a severe tactical disadvantage. What Miss Tilly devised was a small metal disc that acted as a flow restrictor, made to accommodate just the fuel needed for full power, plus a diaphragm fitted to the float chamber. Miss Schilling travelled around the countryside from one RAF base to another, fitting the restrictors, and although it was officially named the RAE Restrictor, the device was immensely popular with fighter pilots who gave it the suitably risque name Miss Tilly's Orifice. P is for P. Peeing on an airliner, no, not actually on the, uh, uh, never mind, is not usually a task that one looks forward to, although sometimes just getting away from your travelling companion for a few moments of private contemplation can be a blessed relief in itself. There is always the question of whether it's worth taking off your complimentary socks and putting on your shoes to avoid stepping into someone else's leakage on the toilet floor and then waking up your fellow passengers to get to the aisle. Modern facilities are pretty tight for space, but in some cases so tight there isn't even enough room to turn around. So, gents, you might need to decide which way to face before going to the gents. Ladies, I'm guessing, will usually reverse in. In most modern airliners, flushing is assisted by a vacuum pump that removes your deposit at something approaching Mach 1. And don't worry, getting stuck on the seat after a flush is an urban myth. Having said that, have you ever seen the trick of unrolling an entire toilet roll down the aircraft aisle whilst getting willing passengers to support it on their flat palms? One end is then put into the toilet bowl and flushed. speed with which 110 feet over 33 metres of toilet tissue disappearing down the loo is cause for much hilarity. One thing that often causes comment is why, when smoking is banned on a flight, is there an ashtray in the toilet? There have been many instances of fires in toilet waste paper bins caused by burning cigarettes, one of which brought down Varig Flight 820. 
In a case in 2015, the perpetrator on a Monarch A321 was caught and jailed for over nine years. Because of the danger, toilets are fitted with smoke alarms, bin extinguishers and, under FAA regulations, an ashtray. In 2011, a jazz flight from Fredericton to Toronto couldn't depart because the ashtray was missing. Instead, they had to fly the aircraft to Halifax without passengers just to have a new one fitted. Q is for the Queen's Flight. Originally the King's Flight. The Queen's Flight provides air transport for the British Royal Family and the Government of the United Kingdom. Unlike the glitzy aircraft used to transport the President of the United States of America, the Queen's flight has traditionally been a modest affair, until the recent arrival, that is, of the RAF's VIP A330 Voyager, adorned by a snazzy Union flag paint job. The first member of this exclusive club pitched up in 1928, and it was a Westland Wapiti, shortly followed by a de Havilland Dragon Rapide. The Envoy 3 they had was replaced in the war by a Lockheed Hudson and de Havilland Flamingo. When peace returned, a long list of types came and went, including the Viking, York, Heron, Devon, Whirlwind, Wessex, Dakota, Chipmunk, Bassett, Andover, BAE-146, and, as mentioned, the A330 Voyager. Other aircraft have been pressed into service as Royal Transport, such as the Comet, the VC-10, and, of course, Concorde. What isn't as well known is that whenever a Royal flight trundled around the United Kingdom, it flew in purple airspace. This specifically designated airspace was a corridor or terminal area that was provided solely for the Royal Flight, notified by NOTAM and active 20 minutes before and 20 minutes after the aircraft passed. There was a special cell in the Tower of London for anyone foolish enough to enter it when active. The use of purple airspace was quietly dropped after 9-11, since it rather advertised the presence of a high-value target. R is for RR. There are a few aircraft engine manufacturers around, but few with the heritage of the ones built by Mr Charles Rolls and Mr Henry Royce. Mr Rolls met Mr Royce in 1904, when Rolls, an avid promoter of and dealer in automobiles, agreed to enter a partnership to build and sell the finest cars in the world. Success followed, with Rolls putting much effort into publicising the quietness and smoothness of the Rolls-Royce. A keen aviator, Rolls made over 170 balloon ascents, even winning a Gordon Bennett gold medal for the longest single flight time. By 1907, he was increasingly interested in aircraft, and the next year he flew with Wilbur Wright before buying a Wright flyer for himself. He became the second person licensed to fly in Britain and made the first non-stop double-crossing of the English Channel. 
Sadly, he also became the first Briton to be killed in a powered aircraft accident when the tail of his flyer broke off during a flying display in 1910. Royce kept the company name the same and, at the request of the government, began building aero engines in 1915. Their very first engine, the Rolls-Royce Eagle, powered the first ever non-stop crossing of the Atlantic by Alcock and Brown in their Vickers Vimy. Rolls-Royce continued to produce fine motor cars and engines which powered some of the most successful aircraft of the Second World War, such as Spitfire, Mustang, Hurricane, Lancaster, Mosquito, etc. At the same time, the company was asked to supply Britain's first jet engines, six of Whittle's WR1. This opened the door for them to produce generations of jet engines, such as the Rolls-Royce Olympus that powered the Vulcan and Concorde, the Avon, Conway, Spey, Pegasus, Adur, RB211 Trent and such. Rolls-Royce remains a world-famous manufacturer of aircraft engines and fine motor cars, each adorned with their famous double R. I love these. Um, wow, you, there's a lot of research that goes into this stuff. <laughs> um, I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, these that. are not. Uh, you know, it's just not just like one story. It's multiple stories all in one plain tale. I was, it gives me a chance to uh, clear out a few little stories. <laughs> Got hanging around. Well, you know, I was listening to this and I'm thinking, oh, I need. I, I have a question or comment about this, and then, oh, I have a question or comment about. Uh, you should have written it down. Now I can only remember the last things you were telling me about, but you know I never knew the first names of Rolls and Royce. Never, you know, it's never ah, occurred yeah. to me that, yeah. You know. I now you you uh, won't meet either of them anymore, so don't worry about. Well, it. okay, <laughs> I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> um, there's something in there that I I was really astonished by, and I just don't recall what it is now. Darn, I guess I'll have to listen again. I'm yeah. sure you will. Well, there you go. I will. I have to listen to it lots of times, and I tell you, <laughs> yeah. well, eventually you'll get bored of it. I will. I will do it again for sure, at least one one more time, because the images that go along with the chapter markers uh, in our our, our audio only podcast uh, in your um, audio playing apps, um, you know, I'll have to put them right in the right place, and uh, so that Absolutely. gives me another chance to uh, listen to it over again. <laughs> and honestly, there are times when I kind of go off and do something and I don't hear the whole thing, but I, I know for sure that I'll get to listen to it in, in its entirety when I do the editing. So great. Another great job, Nick. Thank you very much. One more to come and then we're onto something different. I hope. Okay. I guess next one will be. Numbers. Oh yeah. Numbers. Oh, I remember now what I was going to ask you or say, uh, not ask, but just comment about is the, I thought it was fascinating. The whole thing about N numbers and, you know, G numbers and how that all came about. I thought, I, you know, that, oh, that absolutely. you guys uh, um, had numbers. We, we start with letters. I don't know mm -hmm. quite why, but you know, it's something I can't find out, but just, um, the, the, the FAA has a good little historical uh, section on their website that reveals a lot of facts about uh, that. Hmm. Well, mm -hmm. just like our postal um, codes are like, you know, we see yours and go, what? And then you probably look at us and like, <laughs> how simple that is. Just, you know, a 
a few numbers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the um, the one that amused me um, was that you you could have had W, mm -hmm. um, which actually I think would have been nice for right, but would have been an awful letter to have as a call sign. Oh yeah, W. Just say whiskey yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or just Whiskey, w. November, I don't know. They're I, both. That's a W. November's got more syllables. W. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we don't have a lot of time left, uh, about 15 minutes remaining. And and so, you know, I'm looking through. We have a bunch of feedback, and I can't tell you how, how happy Liz is. She has a great, great big grin on her face because she's not going to worry at all about having any feedback for the next show. We're going to have so much feedback, we won't know what to do with it all, um, which is good. It's a good thing. By the way, if you want to send in feedback, feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. Um, so, um, Jim, uh, the navigate, just a navigator. I don't know if Jim is with us or not. Oh, he is. And um, oh, let's see. I'm looking at his. He's got some audio feedback for us, which is really interesting. Um, and, uh, Landon <laughs> sent in some really interesting audio feedback as well, uh, along with a reference to a YouTube video, but that can, that can wait. I think we'll have a fun discussion with that. Um, the, uh, yeah, there was one that I thought I could do really quickly. Well, I'll quickly say, um, that, uh, Kevin number uh, six sent us a reference or a, a URL to an article about, uh, the uh, the fall of the mad dog from simpleflying.com. And uh, I had nothing to do with it, just in case you're wondering. But uh, a really great uh, article about the mad dog, the MD-88 and the MD-90s. And uh, the um, handful of airplane or airlines that flew them. Uh, Acme was one of them. Um, Lovely picture, by the way, that. That yeah, first picture of it. It's such a sleek airplane, it is. really, isn't it? it? It really is, and and uh, had such a high deck angle when it when it initially uh, took off in the initial climb. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's just a kind of a majestic. Those wings sort of, are a long way back. way back. Yep. <laughs> um, oh, hey, let me do this. Uh, I definitely want to play this little quick. Um, <laughs> um, actually, it was a video, but it's it's really audio and. Uh, Rob from the UK sent this in. He says, loving the podcast. I, yeah, seven. Sorry. I recently heard this short 20-second clip of Comedy Gold ATC with a British Airways flight. <laughs> this is really, really good. So let's play that quickly here. Seabird 116 Heavy requesting push and start. Seabird 116 Heavy, push back on Alpha approved. Push back on Alpha approved. Seabird 116, which way do you like us to face? Uh, face the front, sir. If you're flying looking at the passengers, they get very concerned. <laughs> what a that smart sounds like some, that, Doesn't that sound like a Kennedy controller? I, that sound, I was going to say, was that JFK? Yep. It may have been Kennedy no Steve or whatever whatsoever. his name was. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> well, he's retired, but I think his legacy lives on in but, uh, controllers. I think, uh, that may have, been a, it may have been an older uh, one anyway, so who knows. But anyway, I think at that point you say to the truck driver, do you know which way we're supposed to face? Yeah, yeah, I know, sir. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just push us the way you normally do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that, though. Uh, just don't face the passengers. 
<sighs> okay. Um, well, let's go ahead and play the audio from uh, Jim, and then uh, we'll wrap it up and hit these as hard as we can next week. Um, so let me get back over here. Number five. Um, uh, I've recorded audio feedback for episodes 465 and 466. It's a story of my good friend who had his parachute stream after ejecting from an F4. Uh, so let's, uh, without further ado, play some audio feedback from Jim, and he calls himself just a navigator. So take it away, Jim Howard. Hello, Captain Jeff and Captain Nick and the rest of the cockpit crew. This is Jim in Texas, and I'm going to give you some feedback on episodes 466 and 465. 465, the plane tail was about falling from airplanes, and 466 had a lot of discussion of ejection seats and malfunctions. I had a friend who did both, and I got his permission to tell you this story. I'll call my friend Bones, not his real call sign, but he's a tall, skinny, bony guy, so it seems appropriate. You have to go back to November 12, 1974, which was my first day to report in to Mather Air Force Base for just a navigator school. I'm in an in-processing line, and a lieutenant a couple of uh, slots ahead of me gets in an argument with the dog tag machine about whether hedonism was a religion. So I really didn't think that much about it until about two and a half or three years later, I'm in this uh, new lieutenant in the 67th Tactical Fighter Squadron at Kadena flying the F-4C Weasel. We had a mobility squadron, which meant we were supposed to be able to pack up our bags and go anywhere in the world in a moment's notice. So we had a mobility out-processing line, basically, where they checked all our paperwork and our wheels and uh, shots and all of that stuff. They did have a dog tag machine in there, and my friend Bones and I are going through the line, and Bones tells the dog tag guy, I want to change my religion to hedonist. And I started laughing. I said, so you're that guy. You're that guy all those years in Mather. And he was. And in PACAF, hedonism was pretty much the, the wing religion, at least among the flying crews. So anyway, fast forward about, I don't know, five or six years. And I'm in a headquarters uh, slot. And Bones is an instructor EWO at George Air Force Base in the F-4G. We get a message that an F-4G has crashed at George Air Force Base. So we were all pretty upset about that. Most of us in the ops section had friends there. I decided after talking to some senior officers to make sure it was okay that I could call the squadron and ask for my, one of my friends and see if we could find out kind of any details because all we knew was an airplane had crashed. So I, it's kind of a faux pas to do this, to call a squadron right after an accident and ask, hey, I'm Joe Bagadonis, what happened? But I did it anyway. And I called his squadron and I asked for bones. And he said, well, I can't tell you about Bones because he was beat up pretty bad in this accident, and that's really all we know is what the duty officer told me. So that was pretty upsetting. To make a long story short, here's what happened. He and his squadron commander were flying the F-4G over Cuddyback Range, which is between what's now the Victorville Logistics Airport, which is then George Air Force Base, and Edwards. So they're on the Cuddyback Range, and stuff starts to go wrong. They get a master caution light, and they get some, quote, other flickering lights, and then the utility hydraulic system fails. The utility hydraulic system in a Phantom powers the, the landing gear, flaps, anti-skid, and I think nose gear steering. Correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but I think that's right, among some other things. So they decide at that point 
to go to Edwards there, as about equidistance from Edwards and George. George is now the Victorville Logistics Airport, which I'm sure Captain Rick has flown into. Anyway, so they're heading for Edwards. They're going to land on the space shuttle runway. And then the fuel gauges go to zero. Then the throttles freeze. So they still think they can land because the runway there is 100 miles long or something. So they're lining up for, uh, for final, and they have to blow the gear down with compressed nitrogen because the utility can't lower. So they blow the gear and flaps down. Then they notice some smoke in the cockpit. At that point, Bones rotates the command selector valve. Now he says this was in the checklist for smoke in the cockpit, but I didn't see it in my copy. Let me explain what that is. In the back seat, there's a, a yellow T-handle in the upper left-hand corner of the back cockpit. If that handle is, is vertical, the command selector is closed. Should the EWO eject, initiate ejection, then with the, with the handle closed, he goes out, the pilot can go ahead and fly home, and I guess the backseater would have to buy a round at the club that <laughs> night. I always preferred to fly it that way because I just wanted to step, if I wanted to step out of the airplane, I didn't want to necessarily take the pilot with me if he wants to be a hero. <laughs> but it was up to the pilot. I never argued with him or anything. Some of them wanted it open. Some of them wanted it closed. In this case, the squadron commander flying with Bones had, had asked him to leave it closed. But he, Bones rotated it anyway. He was that kind of guy. He was a lot more assertive nav than me. I mean, and he's just a real assertive person about everything, whether you're ordering McDonald's or flying an airplane. So anyway, he says it's in the checklist. I'm not sure about that, but whatever reason, he rotates the command selector valve. At that point, he notices more smoke. The airplane begins to roll, and he sees flames in the rearview mirror. So Bones initiates ejection. The accident board later found that the probable cause was... A hydraulic line had cracked and was spraying hydraulic fluid into an area under the rear cockpit, creating a flammable combination of oil and air and hotness, which caused the fire and explosion. The pilot later said that at that point, the flight controls had frozen also, but he was psychologically... The pilot wanted to save the airplane and was fighting the flight controls that wouldn't move when Craig ejected them. So Craig goes out, a fall of a tenth of a second, or excuse me, about a half a second later by the front seers. They both go out as the airplane snap rolls. The pilot gets a normal shoot, goes down. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. He just gets a normal shoot, goes down in the desert, everything's fine. But Bones goes out tumbling, and as the seat separates, it punches a big hole through the parachute and streamers it. So Craig is going falling. He's got a drug chute, basically not even a drug chute. He's got a, a streamer like we used to have on Estes bottle rockets when I was a kid, but no parachute. So his last words before he impacts are, this will be the best parachute landing fall in history. And I guess it was because he survived. His back was broken in a couple of places. He was really beat up bad. I won't go into the details. He was very disappointed in the way the Air Force handled that. He got the feeling they wanted, kind of wanted to cover it up. But anyway... He did wound up in a civilian hospital, got some operations that helped, but he's been in pain from this from that day to this. He stayed at Victorville for a year, and he, I didn't know this until I talked to him. He flew one more time in the F-4. He really wanted to get back in the cockpit, so he asked to fly with a, a good friend of a pilot who's a good friend of both of us. And they went up and they uh, they flew a tanker first, 
and Craig claims to have flown the tanker. He was that kind of evil. And I know some guys did. I, I never wanted to fly the tanker, but fly, you know, to do, fly the refueling. But he did. He says, and who am I to say he, he didn't? Then they did some G prep maneuvers, which is basically where you fly in circles and gradually increase the Gs. He got to about three Gs and started crying in pain. He said, oh, knock it off. Let's go back. I can't, I can't be in this airplane. So he went back, landed, wound up in Compass Call, which is an, uh, an EC-130 that has a special mission. It has an, uh, in the back crew, they have an EWO in charge of the, the mission, and they have a bunch of technicians and spooky, scary people back there, and they fly near near bad guys and do whatever it is they do. I've actually had a couple of Compass Call missions, but I don't want to have to kill you guys, so I can't tell you any more than that. Craig wound up in a black program for his last couple of years in the service. He made lieutenant colonel, which uh, he'd certainly deserved because he was such a high-energy guy. But anyway... Uh, he, I've tried for years, and he talks a lot. He loves to talk, but I can't get him to tell me what his black program was. All he could tell me was they didn't let him actually meet the aliens. Bones <laughs> is still very active. Well, he and I have gone on a couple of long motorcycle trips together on our sport touring motorcycles, and he's currently general contractor for a custom house that he designed himself, that he's building himself. And I asked him once, how do, how do you have all this energy? I know you're in pain all the time. He says, well, VA sends me a, about a gallon of heroin every month, and that's what keeps me going. <laughs> so, you know, so maybe heroin has its place in the world. I don't know. Never give up. I have a lot of admiration for Craig as somebody who's really stuck it out after a really hard slap on the face by, uh, by fate. So it is possible to fall out of an airplane and crawl away from it anyway. This is Jim in Texas. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Wow. What a story. That Craig story. sounds like quite the character. And to survive yeah, with just a streamer? Story of survival. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure everyone can gather what that means, you know, streamer. So, obviously, if you have a big hole through your parachute, it's not doing its function of slowing you down very <clears throat> effectively. Um, there's different ways you can get a streamer if your parachute doesn't inflate all the way. Um, but basically, high, high speed malfunction, so you're not getting slowed down uh, enough to land. Um, uh, gently uh, back to the earth. So he talked about that parachute landing fall, which is something that um, anyone who's going to be potentially using a parachute practices where, you know, you bring your feet and knees and everything together and arms by your side and you want to hit the ground and roll safely as you, as you touch down. Um, but yeah, moving that fast, not, not a easy thing to, to do or execute. And you'd think it would be like, feel like a feather when you do the parachute landing fall. No, it's like no, jumping off a no. what, 10 foot wall or something like that. Or maybe uh, not that high. Yeah. But. I mean, it, dep it depends on how fast you're still yeah. going, to be honest. <laughs> We did but, we no, did the parachute landing story. fall training uh, in the Air Force, and you know we had the old fashioned round parachutes, so they don't round really canopies. yeah around canopies, and you don't really have any control hardly of where you're going to put it down. And I guess the velocity coming down Speed. is a lot higher than mm -hmm. a like it's, the kind of parachute you're used fixed. to using. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you can't just completely rest your descent and no, no, touch mm -hmm. down on your tiptoes. No. Mm -hmm. Wow! So no, no, you're you're plummeting like a uh, a, a brick. You just <laughs> well, and then you take that and put, which, a, put a big hole through it, and imagine what that's. Well, yeah, you're just pretty speed. sure which part of you is going to hit the ground first. That's mm -hmm. about all it does. Yeah. yeah. Well, glad to hear he's. At still first, I was thinking staying absolutely. I, I was thinking that he was still in the seat when he, <laughs> but I guess he had oh, separated no. himself from like the he, seat at yeah. that point. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, that must have been really nasty. But uh, great decision to set the uh, command eject on. So uh, I think that was a damn good thing. Uh, double utilities failure, you are quite right. It does early move the uh, um, nose for steering, including um, Adora refueling probe and is scared. Uh, the ARI air doors, arrestor hook, retraction flaps. Uh, hydraulic fuel transfer, plumps, landing gear, nose wheel steering, pneumatic air compressor, radar, antenna drive, the ramps, rudder power control, speed brakes, stab orgs, roll, and your utility ailerons and spoilers, variable bypass valve, wheel brakes, and the wing fold. Um, actually, uh, I'd forgotten the, the Phantom has four hydraulic systems. Uh, two utilities and two for the powered controls. So um, it was actually... Uh, pretty safe, but of course, once the damn stuff catches a light, <laughs> yeah, good luck. Uh, it's, uh, oh, by the yeah, way, good luck with that. He, all that stuff that he was just spewing out, um, he was not reading that, that was all from his memory. Oh, that's brilliant, absolutely very good. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm amazed. Yeah, <laughs> I might point out that the fact the Phantom, our Phantoms, didn't have uh command eject for a long time mm. it was a retrofit we eventually got and uh, we actually had a number of uh, navigators who abandoned the aircraft and their pilots stayed with it um generally speaking uh, we had a lot of uh, guys leave the runway during takeoff uh, there was uh, there was a, a tricksy problem with our nasal steering and guys who come from the air force version who climbed into our ex-navy version found that the nose for steering was completely different and they had a tendency to lose control mm. um, because they just weren't used to it. Get kind uh, of like and, a PIO um, kind of thing? Yeah, exactly, uh, particularly during pairs takeoffs uh, uh, because um, uh, ours, uh, the, the Navy had a weird thing. It wasn't progressive. It was a kind of... Uh, it didn't move very much uh, for the first part of the travel, but if you keep kept pushing the rudder, it became progressively faster and faster until it moved, uh, you know, to about seventy degrees. Uh, so uh, it was f for maneuverability on the deck, but people you know, just weren't anticipating that. Anyway, hmm. uh, a lot of navigators jumped out as they left the run. We had about three uh, in one summer. Uh, left a lot of, you know, wheel... Uh, guys would get airborne off the grass because they'd left the runway. Uh, <laughs> it was really quite funny. No one died. It was just rather amusing. Well, that's the way they used to take <laughs> off and land, right? On the grass No fields. one took out any, like, yeah. taxiway lights or anything? <laughs> no, no. In fact, in one case, the, guy, the, the ground was a bit soft and he was plowing his way towards this taxiway. The navigator had jumped out and... Um, <laughs> Uh, the only thing that stopped his nose wheel from breaking off was he got the nose wheel off, then his main wheels hit this taxiway and it bounced him into the air. And uh, he danced on his reheats for a while and then eventually got flying speed. Uh, and uh, hey, I meant to do that. It works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That was just my fancy takeoff maneuver there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going right. to teach it all to, teach hey. it to you all later. Hey, Bob, what did you think of that? Bob? Bob, where are you? <laughs> well, funny you should think that. <laughs> Bob was, Bob was the navigator. <laughs> I just, I just think I just got to come up with a yeah, name. Bob, <laughs> lovely guy. Bob was gone. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Interesting. Bye, bye, Bob. Oh well, and Bob's your uncle. <laughs> was that right? Is that the term or the yeah. phrase? Yeah, Bob? absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Bob's your uncle. Okay, I was thinking about doing one more, but hey, we're already past our three-hour point, and so we're going to save it. Um, it was just uh, something that was 
uh, kind of connected with the uh, uh, His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh um, or uh, Prince Philip and uh, yeah we can save that for next week and all the other good stuff in there lots of good feedback thank you everybody for sending in all this really interesting feedback and uh, you're going to get a kick out of all of it and if you have something uh, clever or you have a question about something or whatever uh, please uh, don't hesitate to send it to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com we have this website it's great that's called airlinepilotguy.com and uh, there's a way for you to uh, send in feedback via that and speak pipe some audio feedback and yeah lots of different ways to contact us and send us your feedback and we are also on social media we are indeed if you like the short form version of social media head over to twitter and we are at apg crew you can find our individual twitter information uh pinned to the top of that page uh if you like more lengthy discussions maybe facebook is your preferred social media platform we are on facebook facebook.com slash airline pilot guy um occasionally i repost captain nick's beautiful artwork to our instagram page where we are also apg crew um and if you really want the deep dive on things head over to slack which halal is going to tell you about yes, momentarily. slack is uh the thing that uh, is halal's creation well actually he didn't create it but he created the apg team our slack team and hello tell us about that apg listeners please join us on our slack team slack is a communication coordination and sharing platform that works on your mobile laptop or browser on slack we share news and ideas we suggest episode and plain tales topics we plan events and meetups to get into the slack team please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com that's s-l-a-c-k sierra lima alpha charlie kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at hillel and i'll send you an invitation that's hillel spelled hotel india one one echo one and see you in slack thank you hillel uh, for that and uh, we also want to say a big thank you a big round of applause for our producer, director, control room person Hooray. who talks to me in my ear, Liz Piper the in Toronto. Yes, Ooh. she is awesome and uh, does a heck of a lot of work behind the scenes. Thank you, Liz, for that. And let's see. Let me make sure I don't abruptly fade. There we go. That's much better. And uh, until next time, we're hoping that you'll join us again. And uh, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, buddy. Bye, St. George. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, not a guy I fly a
Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy 